This episode is brought to you by my friends Quinn and Samantha Bible of Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or check the link in the show notes. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Eric Kahn. And wanting to wish everyone the week before Christmas a very Merry Christmas. I hope that it is a season of joy and we are celebrating Advent and the coming of Christ. I know we're looking forward to it at Refuge Church, the Christmas Eve service and Christmas service. So I hope you have wonderful plans for your family as well. And this week we have a really phenomenal interview with my friend Adam Dorsey, one of the most incredible stories that I've ever just had the privilege of listening to. I've heard it multiple times from Adam, including at a recent interview when we we recorded this. And it's one of those things I feel like it's just such a good fit for Christmas time. When I was a kid, I remember listening to the radio and we listened to people like Paul Harvey and it was the theater of the mind, right? You'd have these wonderful stories around the Christmas season that they would play in Denver. We were listening to AM 1430 and they still had the old timey radio broadcasts that they would put on. And I just loved them. And they, there was something about them that they could tell a story. Well, Adam has that flair. My friend Adam just has a remarkable story. As I said, Adam was a singer songwriter in Nashville. He has a number one country music charts, number one hit song. So we'll talk about that. Adam has experienced some incredible highs. He's got to meet Garth Brooks. He'll talk about that in this episode. He's got to hang out with Reba McIntyre and uh, do some really incredible things with some incredible people. But the other side of this interview that is so amazing is that Adam has been through tremendous, and I mean tremendous, suffering. As high as a number one hit is in terms of emotions and what it'll do for your life, Adam has experienced a lot of other things as well that really epitomize the lows. As he says in the interview, so many parts of his life have been like the first two chapters of Job. You've got the number one hit, and then you've got severe affliction. But I think it's an encouragement for all of us this Christmas season about the redemptive power about what God can do and what God does do in people's lives. So I think this will be a tremendous encouragement for you. It's a little bit longer, but uh, I usually don't do interviews this long. But I just got sucked in as Adam was talking about it. We've also included some of the songs that Adam wrote in the midst of his affliction. He's still uh, writing songs. And they are tremendously encouraging, especially for guys who are a little bit tired of bro country. Adam writes in the old style. Uh, we'll also talk about in the show some of his top five fav- favorite country singers. And uh, we had a good discussion there as well. So I'd encourage you. This is a good one to listen to with family. Be encouraged about just this amazing story of God's redemption and power in somebody's lives. And again, we want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas from the Hard Men Podcast, and also from New Christendom Press. By the way, special shout out. We give a shout out to Quinn and Samantha Bible. Uh, We really appreciate those guys. If you haven't yet, check out their online store, saltandstrings.com. You can check out meat bundles and a really great time of year to do that and get some special holiday meats as well. Check those guys out. And then finally, we want to give a quick shout out to barbelllogic.com. 
Matt Reynolds has been doing my training and let me just say being phenomenally patient with uh, with me in that process. Uh, if you think that barbell training is too hard, is too difficult, uh, think again. Barbell Logic has been a tremendous help to me getting stronger. Strength is going to help with health span and lifespan. So definitely would encourage you check out the link in the show notes or visit barbelllogic.com slash hard men. You can sign up. Your first month is always free. And they do a really, really wonderful job of coaching and training and helping you become a strong, durable, responsibility-bearing man. Having physical strength is definitely integral to that. So I'd encourage you to check that out. And now we go into the show. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy this edition, Christmas edition, festive, God's Redemptive Power edition of the Hard Men Podcast. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn, and joined today by a very special guest, one of my favorite people on planet Earth. We have Mr. Adam Dorsey. Adam, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Adam, I, I feel like there's so much history between us. We were in seminary together at the same time in Louisville, but there was a particular experience, I think, that... It was sort of one of those band of brothers type deals. Mm. Uh, there's several of us who are working together at Valvoline Instant Oil Change, which I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy, I always dreamed that I would be working on a master's degree while being on the bottom side of a car changing oil in 210 degree weather with that hot oil dripping on my face. So I guess if you would just... I want to hear what your experience of that time period was, uh, kind of how we met, and then and then some of the Valvoline uh, experience, which I know you loved as well. Yeah, it was. I would say it was that shared dream of ours that bonded us so closely <laughs> together and crossed our paths. I remember Eric that when I applied for that job, uh, I applied because the listing said customer service, and I'm like, I can do that. So, uh, but uh, I remember calling you and talking to you and you started explaining what the job entailed, including getting under the hot car and turning the wrench and changing oil. I'm like, I'm not your guy. Like, I didn't <laughs> know anything guy. about cars, uh, you know, and, and you just went on and on. No, no, it's okay. We'll train you. It's okay. I'm like looking at my wife going, this guy does not get it. He does not understand. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, uh, but no, it, it worked out good. I really, in fact, it turns out I really enjoyed getting under the car and uh, turning the wrench and getting dirty and oily. I mean, it really was a good experience for me and helped me in many ways. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so we've got Adam Page, uh, who was there with us. Uh, I think Page is pastoring now. We were talking the other day. Uh, Josh Price, I've had the opportunity to work with Josh again uh, and some other guys as well. Uh, Darcy, still keep up with her through social media. Um, so, so lots of relationships, but it's weird. I think part of it was because it was so hard. So I guess for people who haven't done it, I mean, we were, we were going through seminary. So everybody's like naturally has a, like a full load in their life. Everybody's really tired. At least I was like permanently all the time at that, at that phase. And, um, and then it was physically demanding work. 
Um, I, I don't know. I know you've worked a lot of other customer service jobs as well, but to me, it was also really stressful. Uh, I remember several days, uh, like one day in particular, it was like in the summer, one of those, like we did like 70 cars in the two bay store, which was insane. And I, some lady called and she was like screaming at me on the phone. And I was just standing there holding the phone and my head is kind of down and I remember you came up behind me and you put your arm around me and you, you wrote some verse about being persecuted for Christ's sake. And I was like, Adam, I love you. And simultaneously, I do not want this lady to be yelling at me right now. <laughs> so I guess part of it, Adam, talk about just that experience, you know, brotherhood, going through hard things together. It seemed like that really knit everybody together. Why, why do you think that is? Because that's how the Lord sanctifies, right? Iron sharpening iron. Mm. And and for me, I'll just, if it's okay, I'll, I'll be really transparent uh, about where yeah, I was at in my life at that time. It was not a good time for me in my personal life. And uh, I was in a difficult transition between ministry positions. And um, I was, yeah, I had some sin issues I needed to deal with, including a big, a big issue with anger that really showed itself during my time uh, working there in certain times. Uh, definitely not something I'm proud of, but, you know, uh, that's, that's a reality that I was going through at that time. And number two is, as I've already alluded to, you know, when I grew up, my mom was a, a, a single mother of four children for a good part of my childhood uh, until she met my wonderful stepdad, who is still in my life now, love him, and he has has sacrificed and done so many things to provide for me and care for me. Um, but generally speaking, as a young boy, I, w- I did not have a father in my life. And so, mm. you know, and, and I was not a Christian. I was not in a Christian home. And so you can just imagine all the things that were missing from my soul in terms of meeting the purpose for which God created me. Um, and so when I jokingly said, you know, I didn't know a thing about cars, it's true. I didn't know anything about tools. I didn't know anything about cars, a lot of other things. Um, and so uh, that's why I was so hesitant and even scared to take that job because I thought it was going to be so far beyond what I was able to do. Um, but once once you convinced me to come into the mix and I was surrounded, it, it really helped. I was surrounded by brothers in Christ. Um, once I got into the mix and I went through the training and I actually put my hands on those things, it was like the light bulb went off. You know, not only was I kind of doing what I was made to do as a man, working with my hands, learning to do things I wasn't necessarily comfortable with or felt really good at, but I was doing it in the context of guys that cared about me and were patient with me and they weren't pointing at me and laughing and making fun of me. They were embracing that and, and helping to walk me through that. I mean, that's exactly what happens in the church, right? If the church is functioning in a healthy way, isn't that right? Yeah, it's such a good point. And I remember one of the things uh, with Valvoline that I really appreciated was it was like a good model for discipleship, actually, that, that I didn't actually see in a lot of churches, which was like you'd come on as a technician and then you had a book for every phase. So like senior tech, assistant manager, and whoever was like right above you would be doing the training. So it's like, okay, we got, you know, five minutes of downtime. Um, somebody in Shively is not yelling at us about their tire caps. So we have some time to do some training. And, um, you know, you'd go through the book. We had the observe, do, certify, uh, which I actually still use that terminology today when we're doing diaconal training in the church or whatever. It's like, okay, you're going to watch me do it. I'm going to watch you do it. 
you're going to do it a couple times and then I'm going to certify you um, and say, yeah, this guy's good to go. He can, he can handle the confession during the service or he can do the exhortation. He can, he can preach a sermon. He knows how to counsel people. So a lot of it was really helpful from that perspective. I, I also think it's interesting, Adam, something that you mentioned, because I think for so many of us, I, I was really very much in the same boat where that was not an easy time in my life. Um, there was a lot of, you mentioned anger, like just dealing with, uh, you know, my anger, my self-control uh, in the midst of like, really, you got 20 cars out back and people are yelling at you. and. Uh, we joke about it now, uh, but Mike, who was the area manager at the time, we're, we're still friends. Uh, we still keep in touch. Um, but it's funny because he had told me at one point, he was like, Eric, you're on your fifth portable phone. If you break another one, you're going to have to start buying your own phones. And I was like, I okay. I never knew that. I didn't know that. That's <laughs> yes. Funny. Yeah. And it was always like, Mike would call and he'd be like, Hey, guess what? I need three of your employees. Send them to store <laughs> yeah. eight. And I'd be yeah. like, no, I can't do it. Um, so anyway, but yeah, it was such a refining process. A lot of us talked about it like Joseph in the pit. It's one of those time periods in life that um, it's formative. Um, you look, I look back, I think about like lamentations. It's good for a young man that in his yoke, he bear the youth or in his youth, he bear the yoke, meaning he's exposed to difficulty uh, when he's a young man. Um, but it's also one of those time periods where I look back and I'm like, I never want to do that again. However, uh, you know, I can look back and say it was good for me that I was afflicted. Um, so very formative, but, but it's also interesting, Adam, I want to ask you about this part of the story. So at that time there was, there was a lot going on in terms of the kind of the Joseph in the pit thing. And, and I think of you particularly, because most people never believe this part of the story. I was like, yeah, the, the guy who wrote a number one hit song on the country music charts was an assistant manager at Valvoline and we worked together. I tell people that and they go, he didn't work at Valvoline. The guy's like, he's famous. He was probably living in a mansion. How your story doesn't make sense. So I want you to start to unpack that part of the story for me. How, how did you, maybe let's go back and let's just say, uh, how did you get into songwriting? Um, start at that part of the story. Songwriting is my first love. Uh, I did the math this year, Eric, and I realized I've been writing songs for 30 years. And wow. in my mind, I'm not even 30 years old, you know, so that's a weird <laughs> thing to say. But when I was 16, yeah. um, I, I was, I was, I've always been in music in my life, so I played in the band, like trombone and a little bit of violin yeah. when I was in elementary through high school. So I always loved music and was in music, but it never crossed my mind to do what I ended up doing. And here's what happened. I mentioned not growing up with my dad, so I grew up in Southern California in Los Angeles. And when I was about 12 years old is the first time I remember meeting my dad. You know, I mean, I, I knew I met yeah. him, of course, when I was a little baby. But the first memory I have of my father was when I was about 12 years old. He was he was a truck driver. He was in town. My mom took us to meet him. It was just a surreal experience that that might need another treatment to, to fully unpack. But in either case. From that time on, my older sister and I started flying to Jacksonville, Florida for during the summer to spend anywhere from two weeks to a month or so with him. Uh, you can only imagine what that started to do, uh, you know, to my, my, myself as a young man and then my relationship with my dad. But uh, during that time of just kind of getting to know my father, 
um, he, I discovered that he had a love of uh, playing guitar and singing country music. He had done it since he was very young. And he would dabble in writing songs. But again, I didn't grow up around this. So this was definitely not nurture. This would have been more nature. Um, mm. So during those visits with my dad, I just became enthralled by what he was doing. And I don't know why he did this. Um, I, I, it's not like I said I wanted to learn how to play guitar. But just one summer before I left to come back home, he presented me with this Fender Telecaster. Beautiful, mm. made in USA, just gorgeous Fender Telecaster guitar. And I looked at it like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? And it, he definitely did not say, son, I hope you follow in my steps and learn this. I think he just gave it to me because he saw I loved music and I loved what he was doing. I got that thing home, Eric, and I put it, I remember putting it in my closet. It had a case. I put the case in my closet. And I, I literally remember to this day, one day I opened my closet to get something and I looked down and I saw the guitar in the closet. And my thought was this, man, I cannot let that beautiful guitar sit in the closet. I have got to learn how to play it. That's it. That's it. That's how I got into this. I took the guitar wow. out. I, how old I were you at that point, Adam? I was, I was 16. Okay. And, and uh, I took it out. I started messing with it a little bit. Of course, I had no clue. So I, I had my mom take me down to the music store and I bought this guitar chord chart. It's like an encyc a, a paper encyclopedia yeah. of all the guitar chord, chord chart chords. Uh, you know, we didn't have internet or cell phones or anything like that where you could just Google it. So I went out and bought this, this Bible of guitar chords and I, I started teaching myself how to play the guitar. And uh, now remember, keep in mind, this would have been like 1992. Right in yeah. the huge 90s country craze, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, all, all those, you know, Brooks and Dunn, Reba. And that was a big craze at the time. And, and so I just started trying to learn those songs to play them. And Eric, it, I mean, I don't, I don't think I learned two or three songs before my, the next thought that hit my mind was, man, I can't just play songs that other people have written. I, I want to write my own. It was that simple. And, really? uh, and man, it was... It you you like you mentioned the difference between uh, like an interest and a calling. Yes, um, it's it's clear to me that the Lord has put this in my heart because I've been writing songs for thirty years, and only for a very brief period of those thirty years was I paid vocationally to do it. And it's not something you could stop me from doing. It is by far my first love vocationally. Yeah, you just can't put it down. It, it, okay, so you you realize that you're good at it. You, you start obviously playing, you, you start writing songs, but that's a long way from getting to Nashville. So how, how, how did you get there? Yeah. Well, I had a very supportive mother. Again, uh, I'm not convinced I was a Christian at this time. Mm. Um, and, and I, to be perfectly honest with you, I think if I had had biblical wisdom being spoken into me at this time, uh, I may not have, I may not have gone to Nashville. I may not have yeah. pursued that. Um, and uh, as a Christian father now, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I, I resonate with that dynamic. Although at the same time, I know you agree, Eric, like we want solid, theologically sound, biblical Christians producing art. Like that's a good thing. Yeah. That's something we want to foster as a Christian community. But as you know, you know what I'm hinting at here, it's like the balance between it is very difficult and challenging to make a living, not just a living, 
but a continual, stable, dependable living in this field. There's no easy solutions to this, but in either case, um, I did not have that being spoken into me. I, man, I'm telling you, I, I just, I was so naive and I didn't have anyone telling me that, uh, you know, I couldn't do it and that it was crazy and irresponsible of me to be saying it. And so I went to my mom one day, I, I can, Eric, I can see it in my mind. I left my room, went out and went into the living room and told my mom, I want to go to Nashville and be a country singer. Did well, she, son, if that's, did she tell you, Adam, you're crazy? No. No, she didn't. That's no. great. Son, if, if I know that if that's what you want to do, you can do it. And so I'll support you. I mean, she was very supportive. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I lost her. She died of COVID last November. And I don't know what she was really thinking at that time. I don't know if I've ever had if I had that conversation with her. I don't remember it, you know, since then. But yeah. I don't know if she was thinking I was crazy and she was just trying not to burst my bubble. But she never wavered from that. She never. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. When I when I did move to Nashville uh, to go to start college right after high school, graduated high school, went right there. Crazy. Left my, you know, had a, had a, had a long time girlfriend at the time, just left, you know, <laughs> dropped everything. And uh, I was there maybe a year or less than a year. And I was already starting to feel beat down. I was in college and uh, beat down and discouraged. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this music thing. Here's what my mom told me when I told her I was going to uh, leave the music business program that I was there pursuing and I was going to go to law school instead. Here's what she said. I love you. And if you do that, I will not support you. You will not have any financial help with school from me at all. Really? Yeah, because she knew I was giving up. She knew I was quitting and throwing in the towel. Not that I had had some genuine change of vocational heart, but she knew that I was shirking. I was shrinking away from the challenge of 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 going through with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because when we were talking about this online uh, the other day, I made a comment about what I found to be success, particularly for a creative, right? So doing podcasts, writing, media. It really is about consistent quality content over time. And what that means is that you have to develop a very blue collar lunch pail mentality about creative endeavors. Like you just have to show up every day and do the work. And so much of it is unrewarded in the beginning. So, I mean, I did a a blog for like five years. Then it was like, oh, this is really meaningful for me. My mom reads it and my grandma reads it. And maybe like one person at church. And I remember thinking like, oh man, this is, this is not what I had envisioned when I started doing this. And I look back and it's very clear. God was, you know, he was forming in me discipline. He was making me get up every morning early before work and, you know, write and make sure that I was doing those things. And then what I noticed over time was, uh, I remember this, I I preached my, or or did the uh, graveside service for my grandma. And uh, somebody was telling me, somebody came and they were like, hey, did you know that your grandma, my, my grandma would go to the hospitals and she would serve as like a chaplain type person uh, to minister to people who were dying? And they said, yeah, she would always bring your, your blog posts and she would read those to us. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's years later, years later. I didn't even really know that that was happening. But years later, you find out that the things you were doing actually were having impact, not only in you, but in other people. But, but I got to think, Adam, like you go back to this, you know, this conversation with your mom, like I, you've got to keep doing this. 
I mean, just talk about why that's so important that we have people in our lives and why we, we just do the work. I mean, being a creative is not this always this sexy thing it seems to be. It's like it's a lot of loneliness and a lot of blood, sweat and tears. So talk just a little bit about that. I think one of the dynamics, Eric, about creative work uh, is mm. for unless you are like writing creatively on a newspaper staff where you've got people in the cubicles next to you, or if you're in that kind of field or maybe an actor on stage with other actors, in my case, I'm a songwriter and, and perhaps you're a freelance journalist. You're doing your writing at home. You're doing it by yourself. You don't have others around you to kind Nobody of, Nobody makes you do it. No, that, that's a big one I have on my heart to talk about, the, the self-starting element of this. But even yeah. beyond that, you don't, have commu- you don't have co-workers and community around you who are in the trenches directly next to you, with you, that you see they're also struggling, they're also suffering, and you're, you're rejoicing in their triumphs and they're rejoicing in yours. I mean, again, we are created by God to be a community of people together. So when you do something alone— and it's not bad to write songs in your in your house by yourself or write but but here's the day here's what happens is you struggle and you suffer because you don't have that community of coworkers around you that most of the rest of the workforce has now i'm not making a polemic in favor of everybody you know leaving their homes and and stop doing anything but i'm just saying this is i think an effect of that that if if you're not if you're not clo- if you're not a believer and you're not closely uh uh um entwined with your church family, which is your community, is your support structure, is your your sanctifying uh, community, then yeah, it's going to, you see a lot of these creative people go depressed, go suicidal, they're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, because it is a lonely road in many ways. Yeah. So I'm curious, Adam, like how did you, what types of things were you doing to discipline yourself from that point forward, just to say like, I have to do the work every day. And, and I'm, I'm guessing it's a mix. Like at this point, are you also like working in restaurants? You're writing songs. What's that look like at that time? So uh, how, how do you get the songwriter off your front porch? <laughs> I don't know. You pay him for the pizza. <laughs> That's good. So yeah, yes to working in restaurants. Yes to having a lot of odd jobs on the side. Yes to all of that. Um, so, uh, during my earliest days in Nashville, when I was, I was there to go to college, you know, I was pursuing a four year bachelor's degree in music business because I thought that that would help connect me to Nashville. And that was, that was the key to my getting, you know, people say, how do you make it? How do you break it for me going to college where I went middle Tennessee state and being in the music business program that definitely made my break into the music business possible. So I was pursuing those studies at that time, but also pursuing my craft of songwriting. But I'm not convinced I was a believer at that time. So um, what what motivated me? Are you asking like what made me continue to do that work at that time? I just wanted it so bad. I wanted it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I wanted, you know, stardom, so to speak. I wanted success as a songwriter. I wanted to be among those that people thought was a great songwriter and Mm. could do it. And at the earliest days, I was also going to pursue a career singing. So a singer songwriter, right at the end of my time in college, the Lord really took away my desire to pursue a career as a recording artist, perhaps uh, a subject for another question, but that had everything to do with my Christian faith at the time. 
Uh, although I definitely don't think being a, an artist is unchristian, but for me at that point, it, it, it wasn't what I was looking for for family. Is that because you reasons. were you were just thinking like I mean, if you're the artist, you got a tour, you got it's really yeah. difficult to do that. Is that what you were thinking? That's exactly what I was thinking. Like I okay. I wanted to be a family man. I wanted to be a, a husband and a father. I didn't know exactly what that looked like at the time. I just knew the Lord had put that desire in my heart. And I saw that lifestyle as completely inconsistent with what I was wanting at the time. And so I just I just dropped that aspect of my pursuits and just focused strictly on songwriting from then on. So uh, uh, two questions. At what point did you become a Christian? How did that happen? And then I want to know how you met Christy. Where does where does she enter this story? So how I became a Christian, I'm not exactly sure. I did not. That's why you keep saying, hearing me say I'm not convinced I was. Like I see, you know, it's always hard, isn't it? Because you're looking yeah. back on then with today's sanctified eyes. And so if I do that, I'd say, well, I never was a Christian. You know, I never became a Christian uh, because <laughs> yeah. there's, there's so much wrong with me back then. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm not quite sure when I was converted, but I will say that even though I didn't grow up in a Christian home as a child, my mom's mother, my grandmother, uh, was a believer, and my two, and so I was exposed to the gospel through her influence without question. Um, my two greatest memories of my grandmother were her open Bible and her playing when the role is called up yonder on the piano and singing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, so tremendous influence about the scriptures and the gospel and and just church as a whole from her. So I think I probably heard the gospel. In fact, I'm pretty certain I heard the gospel through her uh, witness to me and her influence in me. I'm just not sure when my heart embraced that and made it made it its own. Uh, for instance, when I went when I was in college, the whole time I never went to church. Now I didn't grow up going to church, so it's not like I fell away from church. I we went sporadically when I was a kid. So yeah. I don't remember going to church at all when I was in college. That's difficult for me to to believe that I had the influence of the Spirit in me in a in a Bible Belt town where I had access to all kinds of churches and that influence. I don't know. Maybe I was a believer, but it's just hard for me to imagine that yeah. I was. So at some point. I just remember sensing in my soul that that it was not me, but a substitute for me that was going to make me right with God. And mm. I, I, I embraced that. I delighted in that. And, and to me, evidence that I was converted is that I've, I've grown. I've been sanctified. I've, I, you're right. I'm still holding on to the Lord Jesus. Well, at some point I took hold and he took after he took hold of me first and so on and so forth. Um, so I met Christy at Middle Tennessee State. We were both, uh, you know, I'm from Los Angeles. She's from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, she came down. We're both the same age, born two days apart the same year. Really? Uh, she came down to, yeah, she came down to MTSU on a total providential whim uh on the on the recommendation of someone in her church that was aware of her musical ability she's a phenomenal singer mm. and uh she did not want to go to nashville to be a singer uh in fact that was what was so confusing to her she wanted to go to nashville to to, to be in the business of it itself she wanted to work in the business <clears throat> and uh, she didn't know how that would look and this this friend of hers in church said hey you should look at this college she did she ended up in the same music business program as I, but we did not cross paths uh, until her, she, she finished in three years. And so her last year, uh, 1997 is when we first crossed paths. And um, yeah, it, 
it was almost love at first sight. Like we, our connection was very strong. And uh, we just uh, in October celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, now, Adam, I got to ask you, did you, have you written any songs about that? I'm sure you've written songs about Christy Love, et cetera, but. Particularly about our meeting? Her. Yeah. Not about our meeting. Trying to think. No, I have written uh, songs about our suffering together. And it's spooky, Eric Kahn, because when I was still a staff writer on Music Row, so that would be a time where I was very young in my maturity as a Christian. That's why I'm referencing mm -hmm. that point. And I was very much 100% country music songwriter. I wrote a song called On the Wings of Angels <clears throat> because we had, we were, we were so poor and we were wanting to adopt because she was sick with a liver condition and couldn't conceive. And so, you know, the, that process is very costly. And we were just young and poor. And I wrote this song as a means of encouraging her. Uh, that, you know, you don't know what the Lord has for us in the future. You know, he's carrying mm -hmm. us. That's, that's what we need to be holding on to now is that he's going to carry us, no, you know, no matter what. And I look back on that song now and, and it's a winner. I mean, <clears throat> it's a winner to this day. It's, it's still spooky how true it, it turned out to be. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, Adam, one of the things I, I wanted to ask is like, okay, you mentioned being a, a songwriter, like a staff songwriter. Kind of for people who don't understand, like what, how, how do you get that position? What does it actually look like? Is it as, you know, romantic as it seems or like, what, what is that life actually like? Well, uh, become, <clears throat> becoming a staff songwriter requires that you be a continuationist because it's a miracle. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it, right. it is, it is a miracle. What, a st what it means to be a staff songwriter uh, at least it meant this back in my day was you get you sign a, a contract with a publishing company that says you will you will exclusively write songs for them that they will own some portion of the publishing on and that mm -hmm. uh, they will pay you usually a very low or modest uh, advance on future royalties. And, and if you gain clout as a successful proven songwriter, then that advance can increase. But for most of us, it's a very modest uh, advance. My first publishing deal I signed, my my uh, advance was $800 a month. Um, of course, in today's figures, that's very low. Back then it was low, but not quite as low as it seems today. But that gives you an idea. So, uh, and, and you write songs like it's your full-time job. And you turn those songs in, you make demo recordings of them, and then they have staff creative staff who goes and what we call pitches those songs, plug song pluggers, song pitchers who pitch those songs to uh, artists and their producers and record labels to try to get those songs um, recorded and to exploit the copyright for, uh, for royalty income. So how many, how many people like were on staff there with you? Well, um, so I was, I was a staff writer for a co-venture with Sony. So technically my paychecks came from Sony Music. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Nashville, Sony Music, I mean, I, there was probably a hundred writers or more at the time on Sony's. Uh, and between Sony uh, proper and then their co-ventures, I was signed to a co-venture called Jody Williams Music. Uh, 
Jody is a longtime uh, music industry veteran. Uh, he, in fact, he still now has his own publishing company. Uh, that's a co-venture now with Warner Brothers, but back then he had a co-venture with Sony. And so technically I was a staff writer for Jody, but um, it was with both. So I could go use Sony's facilities and, and recording facilities. And I got invited to the Sony Christmas party and so on and so forth and still get my royalty checks from Sony as it pertains to that. So you, you, you do this for a number of years. Um, I think you were joking online the other day. You're like, yeah, it was an overnight success. Eight years of writing and uh, delivering pizza and then boom, overnight success. So I guess if you look at that time period, it's, it's not like you, you know, you hit it big right away. How do you be successful when you just got to be slugging it away in the trenches like that? Like I'm talking like mindset. Um, how do you motivate yourself on a daily basis? Uh, how do you do the process? All of it. Man, Eric, there's the answer that I know to be true now. And there's the answer that I was living out then. So quickly, I'll tell you the then, and I'm going to focus on the now because it's true. So yeah. then it was, I, I had an inner drive, a desire. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have the personality where I'm overly competitive. Um, and I definitely don't have the personality where I'm money hungry. So that, that really wasn't it for me. I, looking back then, I, I really loved writing songs and I, I really wanted to be good at it. And I, I really wanted to be successful at it, to, to, to be good at writing songs. Um, today, what I know to be the truth of what motivates me, so to speak, to write songs today uh, that I did not have back then is, uh, is the desire to honor the Lord Jesus in doing what I do to the best of my abilities with excellence with intentionality to honor the Lord in it. Not just like, hey, that song just happened to be one that touched people. No, like it's it's not a successful songwriting uh, 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 event for me if, if I don't come out at the other end with something that, that accomplishes the task of honoring the Lord Jesus. I think of this quote, Eric, that I read in C.S. Lewis' Problem of Pain. And don't be impressed because it's the only C.S. Lewis quote I know, like I memorized. <laughs> don't, don't be impressed. Uh, but it impacted me so much. That's why it's stuck in my soul. And it's this. He says to the effect of, if a man does something that is pleasing to the Lord, that pleases the Lord, but that's not why he did it, it remains a mere happy coincidence. Mm. That's, that's just profoundly true. Uh, especially in the Christian life. I mean, married couples, there, there are pagan married couples that can easily go 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, we've seen them in history all the time and we marvel like, yeah. but don't scratch your head as a Christian like that. That's definitely possible. The thing is, if it's not, if it's not God oriented and God aligned, it's not God honoring. And, and if you will, it doesn't count. <laughs> you know, it just, it doesn't count if you want to put it that way. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. So you get to the point now, if we fast forward, you know, in our lives, we, it, it's nice when you can do that, right? It's, oh, eight really painful, hard years. I'm just going to fast forward to the good part. Uh, but you get to a point where you're going to write a song. We'll, we'll mention what that is in just a second. 
um, that is going to, I guess, put you on the map. It's going to be the, the big success to this point in your career. Um, how does that come about? What's going on? Who are you working with? The whole, the whole thing. Yeah. So I was uh, in the midst of my writing deal with Sony and Jody Williams. Um, and there was another staff writer on staff. His name is Mark Narmore. And, you know, I met so many amazing, uh, successful songwriters that I got to at least rub shoulders with, if not collaborate with. And Mark is one of them because Mark wrote one of my favorite country songs of all time, which is Shenandoah's she took the moon over Georgia. Again, this was like a 90s oh, yeah. smash. And he wrote that by himself. And he was on staff at Jody's. And we had, you know, met each other, you know, uh, uh, encountered each other. But Mark lived and still lives and has always lived in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. He's never, that I know of, moved to Nashville. But he's been a staff writer for years and years. He just makes the trip up, you know, uh, several times a week for all these years. And anyways... If you know anything about Muscle Shoals, you know, it's got just the coolest possible groovy oh, yeah. Southern sound and vibe to it as a music town. So Mark brings that with him to any writing project he's involved in. And so our our publisher had hooked us up to write together and we wrote one song called Mississippi No More. I think that was the first song we wrote together. And man, it just opened my eyes to that cool Muscle Shoals type of sound and feel. And Mark and I were scheduled to write together one day and he was making the drive up from Muscle Shoals. And he called me and he says, hey, how about if we grab uh, some, some lunch at the Chinese buffet in Franklin before our appointment? I said, sure. So, so we decided we would meet there and I was getting ready to leave, getting ready for the appointment. And for years, Eric, at least two or three years, I had had this song idea. I wanted to write a song about Sunday. And at first I even had a little melody going. I had a little title that was called, that's what Sundays are for. And I worked something and I hated it. I was like, this is not it, but I still love this idea. <laughs> and it was like at least two or three years old. And something happened that morning, my brother, something glorious happened that morning as I was getting ready. The Lord literally gave me the title and the opening melody of the chorus. It's what I love about Sunday. And uh, man, even singing it now gives me chills because it was a wow moment as a songwriter. You're like, yeah, there might be something here. So, <clears throat> so I called Mark. I said, look, man, I think I may have an idea for us to work on today. And I ran it by him. He's like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's let's work on that. So we met at the China Buffet. Over lunch, we talked about the song and and what it would you know encompass idea wise. And we got to the office, and as I recall, we wrote it that afternoon, just right there. Just just wrote it in like two or three hours and uh, the whole thing. I yeah. I don't remember. I'm, I'm a definitely a reviser. Like I don't usually write a song that's, that's done at that moment, but I don't remember us making revisions on that song. I think it just came together. Mark gave it that melodic, just, just swampy Southern cool groove that it has. And um, I don't know. I gave it a pretty face. I don't know. Uh, but um yeah. And, and the brother, if you want, I'll tell you how it got its way into Craig's hands yeah. because it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's providential. Um, so, um, uh, a couple of years before what we're talking about now with Sunday, before I ever met Mark, before I was signed to Sony, I had written, a, uh, one of my favorite songs I've written called old green tackle box with my most common co-writer, John Barner, and one of my best friends to this day. 
uh, we wrote it together with another guy and um, Craig, and it was pitched to Craig Morgan. And he was at the time on Atlantic Records, uh, which was his first record label. He'd had some some success at radio on that label. And we found out he recorded our song. So that would have been my first cut as a songwriter. And man, that was just like break out the champagne at steak for dinner tonight. And I don't I don't think <laughs> yeah. that credit card bill has been paid off yet. <laughs> so it was through that connection he recorded it. What happened, Eric? And this is a this is a Oh, a sorry tale of a songwriter in Nashville. Even though he recorded it, you'd think, well, Adam, I've never heard it. Can I buy it somewhere? No, you can't. I've never heard it because before the song got released, the record label folded. Atlantic Nashville, they folded their Nashville operations. That song is sitting recorded on some shelf and never got placed on, never never got released on a record or, or available for really? sale. That's, that's a common heartbreak tale of every songwriter in Nashville. So, but through that, Eric, I got to, um, I was, I used to do the Bluebird Writers Nights all the time, just writers in the round. And I was scheduling a writers in the round. I was the one putting it together. So I, you know, back then I, I told you, Eric, I was fearless. I was, I was naive. I just, I, I would do anything. I would ask anyone for anything and just beat the streets. I told Chrissy, I'm going to call Craig's manager and tell him who I am and see if he'd be willing to do this writer's night with us because he was in between record deals at the time. Interesting. So called the manager. He, they said, we'll check. They came back and said, yeah, he said he'll do it with you. And it was all just based on that one song of mine that he had heard. And we did this writer's night and he was on the round with me. And man, you talk about two peas in a pod. We just clicked. We hit it off. Uh, yeah, it was just a really neat connection. And for a songwriter to make a connection with a recording artist, that's a pretty meaningful thing, right? Like that's a big deal. That's a big in, if you will. It's a big advance on your career to make a connection like that. And so from that point, Craig and I started to become, you know, friends, acquaintances. It's not like we were best buds, but we would, we wrote together a couple times and he told, he gave me an open invitation. He said, anytime you, you record a session of new demos, send them to me. I want to hear them. And, uh, at this point he got signed to Broken Bow Records, his new label, and, and he had released a project. And so I, of course, I took him up on that offer. I sent him this new session of demos that I had done. And one of the songs on it was That's What I Love About Sunday. And Eric Kahn, I remember where I was when I got the call. I was at home uh, during the day feeling sorry for myself. And that is true. (laughs) I mean, feeling sorry for myself. And uh, I get a phone call and it's Craig Morgan. And I don't know about you, but I don't live a life and didn't live a life at the time where recording artists were calling me. (laughs) I get a call and it's Craig Morgan and he's in his car with his wife, Karen, and he is giddy. And he says to me, man, I just got your new session. I love this song. That's what I love about Sunday. That's going to be the first single off my next record. And of course, you're thinking, oh, Adam, how did that feel? I'll tell you how it felt. It felt like, well, let's see, you know, like... You know, stuff happens before things get released. So I hope so. From your lips to God's ears, my brother. But it was exciting. As Craig tells me the story later, later on, unbeknownst to me, my publisher had also pitched that song to the record label on a a compilation of songs that my publisher was pitching for Craig Morgan. And they had put Sunday on on the disc as one of many songs to pitch. And as I've been told the story, um, Craig was going into a meeting with the label to talk about song selections for his upcoming album. 
And he comes in wagging my demo saying, I've got my first single. And they said to him, no, we've got your first single. And it was the same song. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that just, you know, that kind of reiterates, Eric, what in, in our industry, what people say, uh, the formula for a hit song is the right song with the right artist at the right time. You mm-hmm. take out any of those and it's and it, it may be recorded, it may be on the radio, but it won't be enduring. And ours certainly has been enduring to this day. So take it from there, Adam. I mean, Craig says, you know, we want to record it, but that's, as you said, that's a long way from actually, uh, you know, taking off, getting on the album, let alone taking off. How long was it before, you know, we, 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 you know, just let people know that song went number one, um, which is incredible. Um, but how long before, like, what's the time in between? Wrote it with Mark in 2003. Uh, it was recorded by Craig in 2004 and released on his record as the first single in the fall of 2004. So a little over a year after we wrote it, it was actually on the record on the radio. That's not an uncommon time frame for things in the music business, you know, months and years as opposed to days and weeks. Uh, I remember the day that I got the call to come hear the song as it was being mixed. Uh, again, I was not living a life at the time where I was getting calls from recording artists to come to the studio and hear my song being mixed. So you didn't, you didn't um, fly in on your Learjet from a beach not, house? Not, not that day, no. Uh, so I, you know, I'm tooling around town. Uh, and um, Christy, hang on, no, let me get the timing right. No, I, I, I get a call from Craig saying, hey, like I knew it had been recorded. One of, one of the musicians that was on the session uh, was a friend of mine that I had used on my demos a lot. And he said, hey, man, we just recorded your song with Craig. And I, so then I knew it actually happened because they'll say they're going to record it. Not they being Craig, but just it happens where artists will say we're going to record it. And then something happens where they change their mind. It's legitimate. I mean, they're like, man, this song doesn't fit me. Things just happen, right? So so I got the confirmation that they had recorded it from one of my musician friends a while a while before that. And then Craig calls me just randomly one day and says, hey, this we're, we're mixing it in the studio. Do you want to come hear it? And I'm like, let me think if I have time. What do I have going on? <laughs> so I called Christy, who worked for a, a Universal Music Publishing on the row at the time as an administrator. And we, I pick her up and we go to the studio. And uh, listen, we walk in and... It's not my song that's being played. It's it's another one of his songs that ended up being on the record. And it's um, it's John Conley in the vocal booth cutting his vocal to this duet that he and Craig are doing on that record, which I, I was not prepared to meet John Conley, who's a country music icon. Uh, the day that, that I went in the studio there. I mean, the voice is unmistakable. I walk in the booth. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's John Conley. I look, Craig points to the leather, look in the booth, and there's John Conley just screaming it out. I'm like, good heavens. So after that was done, Craig introduces me to John, and then he says, hey, John, he's the writer of my first single. And he and they push play, and he plays this, this glorious masterpiece, my first actual recording that's released, going to be on the record, and as it turns out, going to be a single to radio. And it was surreal, brother. You want to talk about the culmination of starting at 16 years old, yeah. Sacrificing everything that you knew and loved in your hometown, moving to Nashville, uh, not only moving to a new state, but moving to a new culture, Los Angeles to Nashville. Goodness. And 
And then uh, uh, beating it out through college, you know, busting it on the weekends. I didn't have girlfriends. I, I wrote songs in my dorm room all the time on weekends. I didn't go out partying. Um, I, I uh, went through a first publishing deal with a different company. Nothing ever materialized commercially from that. I mean, and this is the moment you're on the top of the mountain and you hear it. And it was as sweet as you can imagine. And then listen, I, I took Christy back to her office. And I was heading from her office to my office. I had another part of Music Row. And before I get to my office, Christy calls me. And she says that uh, the adoption agency called, just called her and said that our profile has been chosen to adopt. Wow. So on the same day, within a couple of hours of each other, I hear my song for the first time. And we get the call that we're gonna, chosen to adopt. And that's our son, Jake, who just turned 18 in October. Wow, he's 18 now. He's 18. That's incredible. I, I, yeah. We're not that old, Adam. But no, time flies. no, no, no. I told you. I, I've been writing songs for 30 years, but I'm only 26. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So from, from that day, uh, which is interesting, uh, maybe we'll connect this dot later. I think we will. People might hear your story and they think, wow, this guy just pff, dealing sevens all the time. Oh, yeah. From this. Adam hit the mountaintop and the story ends. Yeah. Cliffhanger here, but that's not where it ends. Mm -mm. Um, it gets a lot more interesting in many, many ways. So that day you have your song recorded. How long before you hit number one? So the song was released to radio in the fall of 2004. And it was released, so that's a thrill. I remember the, the first time I heard it, Eric. It was, um, we knew it was coming. Um, but I get a call like at 6 o'clock in the morning from one of our church members. I was serving as an interim youth pastor at our home church in Spring Hill, Tennessee at this time. So I was right in the midst of, of this spiritual transition, if you will, to a call to ministry. So that was expressing itself at that time in this in this part-time youth ministry job that I was doing, right? So I get a call from our one of our church members, and uh, he said he just heard the, the DJ announce that Craig Morgan's new single, That's What I Love About Sunday, is going to be played after commercial break. And I don't know about you, Eric, as a creative guy, but I am not a morning person. I don't rise <laughs> no. early in the morning. My Listen, I open my guitar case at 10 o'clock at night. That's just the truth. It's always been that way. And so uh, both Christy and I scramble out of bed. We were preparing the nursery for Jacob, and it wasn't even fully complete. So all we had, we, we took our clock radio. The only radio we had was a clock radio for our alarm. We took it and we plugged it in the wall in his room and we scurried to find the radio station on the little analog <laughs> dial on the side. And we're sitting on the floor in Jake's nursery and we hear my song on the radio for the first time. And Eric, yeah. if I had hair, it would be standing up right now because I have goosebumps. Like <laughs> it was, it was as surreal as you can imagine. And that, that <clears throat> excuse me, that is another peak on the mountaintop like you mm -hmm. know you go to you go to the himalayas they have more than one peak this is another peak and uh it was it was sweet um so that was fall of 04. you know craig was on an independent label broken bow records at the time and back in 2004 independent labels were not able to get a lot of traction for their projects at radio because they did not have the budgets for promotion. 
I don't care what the law says. It, it, it very much is a, a promotion dollars to songs being played on the radio at ratio. That's just a reality. And, and labels, uh, small and independent, they just don't have the budgets that Sony, Warners, and Universal has, you know? So as a, a, what, what that looked like is, you know, you might have your song released to radio, but it, it didn't perform as well because they just couldn't push it up the charts, so to speak, with giving the, giving the radio station free concert tickets for Craig and this kind of thing. It just, they had one, one or two artists and that's it. They didn't have a whole roster. So the expectation um, at the time is, is uncertain as to how this song can do given, given the budget that's behind it. But as it turns out, that's not at all what happened. Um, it quickly started just jumping up the charts and it was so surreal, Eric. It was like, it was happening so fast and it was so yeah. unbelievable it was hard to enjoy it in the moment because you know what I mean? Like, have you ever had those moments where you're at a concert or something and it's so glorious and you're like, I I'm not even hardly enjoying it in the moment because I can't process it. Every week I would check the, the, the billboard charts and radio and records charts and it would just be going up and up. And I'm like, no, no, it couldn't, couldn't happen, you know? <laughs> and then it broke the top 10 and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. And it broke the top five and it was like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And then at that point you're thinking, man, it would really suck if this thing like bombed at number two and didn't go to the, like, we made it this far. It would be like horrible. Like, it would really be a letdown. Let's go all the way. I remember where I was, Eric. I was standing outside the church and I get a phone call. And I was told it went number one. And I just don't even know how, I don't know how, if I have words to describe, again, the culmination of all the years, all the times I waited, the times I, I, I left work on Music Row after writing songs all morning and all afternoon and then went and pulled a dinner shift at, at mm. the restaurant um, for years and years. And Christy uh, working her full-time job that didn't pay anything. Um, and us trying to adopt her being sick with her liver condition. And here we are. And we own Nashville for that. It was five or six weeks. Number one, brother, for an independent label to score a number one, let alone a multi-week number one at the time in, in country music. It broke history. If you Google it, it's something like from it, 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 the last time it happened was like in the 70s or 80s. It was just it went back a long ways. It's just the reaction to the song and quite frankly, Craig's representation of it, not just vocally, but personally as a man and as, a, as an mm -hmm. artist, the integrity and the hard work and the genuineness and the authenticity that he has and is as a human being. Since then, we've become much closer as friends. We know each other much more closely. Uh, after we moved here to Cleveland last year, I actually got to see him in concert. And we got to visit with him and hang out and catch up with him. It was really a thrill. But um, yeah, it was like this thing was on a train to the top and no one could stop it. Not even a lack of budget, so to speak. The people were calling and requesting it. And it stayed at number one for five or six weeks. And um, it, it was, uh, you know, I used to be an intern, Eric, when I was in college. I'll tell you this story because I think your listeners might like to hear it. Uh, when I was in college, I did an, an internship in my senior year for one of the uh, companies on Music Row called ASCAP. ASCAP, you might know, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. Mm. There are three performing rights organizations in the United States that you can affiliate with to have them uh, track 
your public performances of your of your comp- compositions and pay you for them. So they take an administrative fee, but they track every airplay, every concert performance, every TV, every time my song's played on TV, all those public performances of songs. What they do is they collect um, license fees from bars and restaurants and venues and radio stations. All those fees go into a big pot. You earn credits and the more your song is played and so on and so forth. And that's how you get one of the income streams for a songwriter. In fact, the most lucrative income stream usually for a songwriter is performing rights uh, and income. And I was interning for ASCAP, which is one of them uh, on Music Row. And this is one of those um, opportunities, Eric, that I got through college that helped break me into the business. So I was interning for one of the vice presidents and um uh, so my duties were, as you can imagine, like from getting coffee to making coffee to making copies, returning phone calls for him, all the way to helping to plant, uh, not plant, but helping to prepare for and clean up from the number one parties that they would throw for the people, the songwriters and artists that were affiliated with them. So brother, this, this is how I got to meet Garth Brooks for the first time. You got to meet him? Yeah, working at ASCAP, buddy. Uh, I worked his number one party for the duet he did with his now wife, Trisha, called In Another's Eyes. And man, I'm trying not to talk too much and be long winded. So I'm not going to tell you that story unless you beg me to. But I, you I have, have to tell me that story, Adam. OK, well, then you then have then to. It's, it's your fault. Um, <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> it's your fault. Sorry, guys. This thing would have been over by now if not for these. Yeah. <laughs> These are neat stories to recount, though. But man, you got to know, Eric. I mean, I had an unhealthy obsession with Garth Brooks. And I know I'm in a big club there. I get that. I'm not I'm not any more psychotic than anyone else who's a psycho fan of Garth. But the reason I was is because I just was floored by his songwriting, the content of his songs. They, they weren't just useless ditties. These were deep, reflective songs. And that just struck a chord in me. And no pun intended. And I, I literally studied his album liner notes every time a CD came out and I memorized who all the writers were on the songs, the publishers that they wrote for. That's how I even knew what ASCAP was at the time. So find out I'm working the same day that Garth's number one party is. And I'm going around the office like, you guys don't understand. You don't understand. This is huge. I am a huge Garth Brooks fan. So uh, but I'm at the same time like, dude, do not blow this. Don't be some crazy psycho and lose it and embarrass yourself. <laughs> so anyways, uh, Garth is in the building. I received notice. He's in the building. Well, I, I I was working up on the third floor at the time. And all of a sudden, I round the corner and I see him come around the corner. And um, somebody introduces me to him. And I, I, you know, I try to hold it together. Nice to meet you. You know, you're supposed to be professional. <laughs> And nice to meet you. You know, wow, congratulations on the number one. Like you need another one, you know. Uh, <coughs> and and so he's kind of going around making the rounds because he's a gracious guy. He's 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 saying hi to everybody. He's a longtime ASCAP member. He's a big advocate for ASCAP. So he's going around saying hi to people. I just have this brief encounter with him until after the party. I see him on the third floor and he's in the office of the president, the, the president of that location of the Nashville branch, Connie Bradley. And he's in there talking to Connie. And uh, the next time I see him, he's leaving the office and he's, he's saying goodbye, you know, and I just happened to turn 
and look in, look into Connie's office, and I see the puffy vest that he'd had on all day is wrapped around the chair back that's in Connie's office. Like he took it off, sat in her chair, and talking. I was like, oh yeah. So I, I get go to and, touch Gar's vest. No, better than that. No, no, better than <laughs> yes. that. I grab the vest and I I catch up to him and I say like I you know I'm probably like 30 40 feet from him at this point and I kind of yell out, "Hey Garth." He turns around, he goes, "Yeah, Adam." <laughs> he knows my name. He got his vest back. And um yeah, there's another great story of he and my wife, but I'm not going to tell you because it take up too much of your time. <laughs> oh, what? Okay. Was it that night? No. So sometime after that, maybe within a year-ish or six months-ish of that event, um, Christy and I, we're, we're still both in college. I'm not signed to my deal yet. I'm still definitely a, a scrub. And we have volunteered to work the CMA Awards, as we had done a few times. So part of our duties are to hand out the programs at the end of the evening as people are leaving, the programs that have all the list of all the winners. So you can't yeah. see it before the show's over. So they break open the boxes when the show's over. And we have these stacks of programs and people are filing out of this auditorium. And I'm at one door. Christy's working the other door. And um, this is at the time, Eric, when Garth came out with his alter ego, Chris Gaines. And he came oh, out with that yeah, Chris Gaines yeah. project. And it was it was just coming out. Like it had just been released. And of course, as you can imagine, before it's released to the public, anyone who's working in the know on Music Row, they're going to have access to it ahead of time. It's just, the pro, you know, just projects are known yeah. to people before they get released. It's just part of the deal. So Christy was familiar with it through her work at Universal. They had received some advanced copies of it and she listened to it and she really liked She came home. She said, I, I like this. I think it's kind of cool. And, and so, uh, I look, I'm, I'm passing out my programs like, I'll be famous one day. Just remember me. <laughs> Enjoy your evening. And, and I, I happen to look over at the other door, and there's my wife engaged in serious discourse with Garth Brooks. And so I, I, it's kind of one of those double takes. I look, and then I look back like, what in the world? And I'm thinking to myself, thanks a lot, honey, for not calling me over. Like, thanks for sharing the, the, <laughs> the, the, the bread here. So I'm like, okay, what is going on? So I'm passing out and I'm kind of not paying attention to people. I'm like throwing programs and looking over at my wife, talking to Garth, like, okay, when am I going <laughs> to? So I look over again and she's still talking to him and, and you can tell they're back and forth and she's engaged and he's engaged. I'm like, dude, I don't have the same things to offer her that he does. I wonder what's going on here, you know? So, <laughs> so we get done and I'm like, honey, come on, dude, you're killing me. What is going on? And she goes, it was the coolest thing. It turns out she started talking to him about the Chris Gaines project. And he was like, oh, that's, thank you so much. Tell me, tell me what it is. What do you like? So she's going through songs that she likes and things she likes about the songs. And they're going back and forth. And it, it seemed like forever. It was probably five to ten minutes. And, uh, yeah, so now anytime we see Garth on TV or someone says anything about Garth, I'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, your old buddy. Yeah. You still <laughs> talking to buddy. him? You still talking to old Garth? Actually, your buddy was Chris Gaines, not Garth. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. So Adam, I, I'm curious. Um, you, you have this transition, right? Where you, you obviously at this point, you probably have your own plane. Um, you're riding around. You get to play uh, your own number one uh, event, right? So you picked up on this. So 
I was an intern at ASCAP, but even at the time I had already affiliated with ASCAP, even though I had no recordings that were being tracked by them. It was just, I, you, you right. kind of want to join one as a songwriter. So I joined ASCAP. I interned for ASCAP. I became an ASCAP kid. Uh, interesting factoid. Uh, shortly before I was an intern at ASCAP, Brad Paisley was an intern at ASCAP. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Several, yeah, several people came through that. Uh, that's just how the music business works. It's just, mm -hmm. it's like that. So, uh, um, yeah, I uh, my song goes number one, and then I get a call from my old boss, my vice president that I worked for, John Briggs, who was so good to me, so gracious, so patient with me. Um, so kind. And um, he called me, as was his custom, for an ASCAP writer who gets a number one. And you get to go, he, he takes you out to a nice dinner. That's what they do. They, you know, you have a number one, you get a nice dinner, and then later you get a number one party at, at the office. So he takes Christy and I out to the Palm in Nashville. And he's like, Adam, do not hold back. And so you know that, that item on the menu where it says uh, market price? It doesn't even list the price. Yeah, give, give <laughs> me your price. Give me your biggest lobster. It was three pounds, and uh, I recall eating all of it. And John was thrilled. He was so happy for me and so gracious and kind. We had a really nice dinner that night. And talk about sweet, you know, to go from the scrub uh, oh, yeah. to the to the man. Uh, that was a neat feeling. Uh, it felt really good. Um, maybe pridefully too much so, brother. Right? Because. What do I have that I have not received? So why do I boast as if I've not received it? Right? Such temptation to pride in these oh, things. Yeah. Right? So uh, uh, undoubtedly sinful pride involved in that. And then I get the call. Hey, we're scheduling your number one party. What kind of food do you want? What kind of drinks do you want? Give me your guest list. I mean, it was all me. Right? And, and uh, my co-writer was BMI, one of the other PROs. So I had my own party. Now he was there. Of course, everybody was at both parties, but I'm just saying this was a party for me. And man, I yeah, I can't even tell you. It was surreal because I look over and there's that lady who always put out the drinks and always kind of stocked the bar. There she is doing it. And I used to help her. We used to joke and talk and we were the scrubs and there she is doing it for me. And I go over to say something. She's like, no, this is your party. We're, this is for you. And um, it was it was just surreal. Uh, it was a treat. So one of the other things I think I remember you telling me one time is that there was a female country music singer oh, that was sort of a hero that you're you got dog. to meet. So I got to hear about it. There's more than one, Eric. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be silly. There's two in my mind right now that stick out. I think the one you might be referring to is an ASCAP story. And it was when I was an intern and I was working a number one party for the inestimable Martina McBride. That, that's the one I was thinking about. Those yeah. humongous blue eyes and that gorgeous dark hair. Ooh, man. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I cannot tell you how minimal my role was in this part. I do not want it to seem like I was the person handing the microphone over to anyone to speak. I, I was nothing. Um, and and and. I, I mean, I just helped, right? So I was nothing. And when the party was over, this is how, like, you have to be pushy and zealous and totally shameless to to get ahead in that business in any way. I'm serious. And and yeah. I was all of that back then. I had no filters. And 
Um, cause I'm like, if I'm going to move out here and do this, I'm going to do it. I, I mean, you know, okay, I'll be your fool. I don't care. I, I'm here to, to do business. So the party's almost over and I'm like, I am getting a picture with Martina, right? It's going to happen. So I motioned to ASCAP's uh, staff photographer who always took pictures of these events. And I said, yeah, yeah, over here. And I go up oh, and let a dude, I say to Martina, is it okay if I get a picture with you? And of course she graciously says, yes, around her shoulder goes my arm. And click, click goes the camera. Now you say, okay, give us proof. I have no idea where that picture is. I never got it, but it's there. It's, 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 it's there. Somebody somewhere has this photo. I'm sure it's not her. <laughs> uh, story number two, I was okay. doing, uh, I was writing for Sony at this time. And I was doing one of these writer's nights, these writers in the rounds at Bluebird that are, that are now famous through the show Nashville on TV years ago. And uh, I was in the round with some really successful and experienced songwriters that that uh, did the show with me, but not because I was a contemporary of theirs, but because my they were familiar with my wife and they agreed to do the show graciously. Mm -hmm. So here I am on this round with with other guys that have really had a long years of long success and. Um, the show starts and I'm in the, it literally is around. There's four guys. You're all, you're facing each other in a circle and there's tables and crowd all around you. And it's very intimate and dark. And the, the front door to the building is right behind me. And I, I'm, I'm emceeing the show. I'm hosting it. So I'm, I've started, we've, we've all played a song and, um, all of a sudden I can hear the door open behind me. The show has already started. And I see filing past me, Reba McIntyre and several of the cast members from her television show, Reba. At yeah. The time, right. I remember that. And so, you know, my wife, the first thing she does after she sees them is she locks eyes with me because she knows I'm going to be having a heart attack. Right. Because I was a huge Reba fan. My first country music concert was at the Forum in Los Angeles, and it was Reba McIntyre and Brooks and Dunn opened for them. Oh, wow. And I went with my girlfriend and her mom. And when Reba came out on stage in that red dress to sing fancy, I stood up and went crazy and got the look. Buddy. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was like a junior in high school or a, or a yeah. senior in high school. I mean, I was like, yeah, more, more. And so anyways, Reba walks in, right? Because Bluebird is a tiny room. And so there's no, it's just really shoulder to shoulder. So they brush past me. So now I've got to play my next song. In either case, the show went off. We did it. We, we finished it. And she was very gracious afterwards. She came up. She, she talked to me about the show, about my songs. And I do have those pictures. I do have those. Oh, nice. Well, fancy, I should say. Very gracious. Uh, very kind. Yeah. So Adam, before we talk about, assuming you still have time, you're still good on time. Yeah, they're, they're, they're gassing the plane now. It'll take a while. <laughs> hey, listen, when you got a private jet, you leave when you want, okay? Yeah, you that's not thought, how it really you works, Eric. You're, you're so naive about how it works. Wait till I, you get your you can tell you'll out. You can tell I've never been there. <laughs> so, Adam, I wanna, before we move away from country music for a second, I, I want to get your professional expertise. So, now... You got to keep in mind, like not every country musician writes their own songs, but if you had to pick top five greatest male country musicians of all time, what are your top fives? I don't have to think about it too much. I've already mentioned Garth. Yeah. I am a, because he of my dad. Um, 
For me, yes, he probably is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and and the ones I'm going to list after this, uh, some of them are well before my time, but my dad's influence exposed me to them. Mm-hmm. Um, George Jones, by far, huge George Jones fan. Uh, I wish I could write music like that. I just love the whine of a steel guitar and real like people singing songs about the mistakes they've made and how it's totally messed up their lives. Like that's biblical. You know, that's, that is, that's Ecclesiastes. That's Proverbs. Like don't be foolish. And uh, George Jones sings and sang and performed like very few. Um, uh, There's one other that I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the name right this second. I hope I can come back and circle back to it because his, his buttery voice was just, Again, same era. Um, ding, dang it. It's oh, embarrassing that I can't. Florida Georgia line, I think is yeah, what we're looking thank for. Thank you so much. You rescued me. <laughs> um, so, so Garth and George Jones, I'm a humongous Alan Jackson fan. And I got to, mm. Christy bought me tickets to see him. Uh, it was, she bought, it came to me for Christmas a few years ago. We went and saw him and brother, it did not disappoint. Really? Man, he's so, I love, cause he's more traditional country music, you know, and uh, I, his performance of Hank Williams blues man that, that Alan mm. covered and he record, he recorded, but his live version, brother, it's one of the best live performances I've ever heard. And as you can imagine, I've heard a lot. Oh yeah. Uh, I've heard a lot of live performances and it, I mean, I, I just, I, I couldn't almost recover from it. It was so good and haunting. Um, so I love Alan Jackson. Um, although I'm not really good at writing that style. Yeah. So Garth Brooks, uh, George Jones, Alan Jackson, uh, the one I was referring to earlier, I thought of it's Vern Gosden. Uh, that voice is just impossible. And the production, you know, back in the time, like I said, with, with real country instruments, steel guitar, fiddle, um, and just the songwriting was so simple but deeply profound emotionally, just tying people's really bad mistakes with the pain and sorrow that it creates in their lives. And that's just real. Like that's, that's something that we, we don't need to be celebrating our bad choices and our sins. We need to acknowledge and repent. Of course, as believers, we know that. But when you look at those who are, who are writing, not necessarily from a Christian perspective, isn't it telling Eric that even they know that these these choices in our lives have really bad effects on ourselves and those around us and can ruin our lives. And that's right out of Proverbs. It's right out of everything that Jesus teaches us about the effects of sin. Um, and that, that, unquestionably, that's what attracts me to country music as a, as a Christian and as a songwriter is that whole dynamic. One question I have for you, and then I, w- I want to get to your yeah. last pick. Um, one of the things, everything you describe about country music is I grew up with, uh, as a matter of fact, I think the first album I ever had was actually uh, my aunt bought it. And it was on cassette because that's Amen. what we were we were doing back then. Amen. So we were rolling around in my aunt's non air conditioned vehicle in the middle of summer, and we were listening to Garth Brooks' first first album. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to that, and um, it, it it was just I sang all the songs. Um, it was just an amazing album. Well, fast forward, my favorite person on Twitter, uh, for, well, for one thing, not my favorite person overall, but the real Kenny Rogers. I love the real Kenny Rogers because he will always say, he's like, happy Thanksgiving to everyone except Florida Georgia line. 
and anyone who likes it. <laughs> and he'll say similar things about Luke Bryan. So what I want to ask you is what happened? Because country music today is very different. Uh, yeah. We were uh, recently on a hunting trip. We turned the dial, which we barely ever do, mm-hmm. uh, to a country music station. And my oldest son, Benjamin, he says to me, he goes, is this even country music? It sounds like a mix of like hip hop, rap, and it's all like, it, it, it sounds almost identical to pop. Uh, pretty much all of it is like, hey girl, get up in my truck, shake it for me, country girl, all yeah. this language. So, I, and, and, and I'll give a caveat here. I mean, realistically, there's been some songs like the uh, Ingrid Andrus song about um, breaking more hearts than mine. There, there's a few songs in there where you're like, wow, that's actually a really good song. That That's more reminiscent of like country music. But I just want to ask you, like, what happened to country music? How did we get to bro country? Well, I can't, I honestly, I can't speak for the industry on that because it changes so with such fickleness, uh, at least mm. to our, out, our on-looking eyes, right? And yeah. so much of, in my opinion... Um, so much of what drives directions in these industries in these genres is radio and in maybe in in nowadays like streaming so where in other words it's very pragmatic right so wherever the income is generated the that's where the influence is going to trickle down from all the way down to yeah. those who are writing songs to try to appease that income generator. Now, that's not completely illegitimate, by the way. That's that's legitimate. If you're in this, if you're into to to do this commercially, then you need to be wise about the the end product, right? Uh, so long as you don't sacrifice um, the 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 truth and and um, and integrity of of what we value as Christians, right? That's that's why a lot of guys like us are not signed to professional deals right now, right? Those two are often at odds. Um, yeah. So, uh, I would say that I, I, so I can't, I can't exactly say why I've observed the exact same thing you have. And I've already betrayed my personal preference for country music, like what you would call the old style country music. I just, man, I just, it does something to my soul when I hear that. And today my soul is not impacted in that same way. That's a, that's what I can say for sure. Um, you, I don't know how you picked this song, but you named one of my favorite country songs in the last five-ish years by Ingrid mm. Andrus, Breaking More Hearts Than Mine. If I've got you great go taste, back, Adam. To, man, listen, <laughs> if you go back to my Facebook account, Eric, if you go back to my Facebook feed, sometime a couple of years ago, I posted a Facebook post that said country music is back. And I, I posted that song. I shared that song. Interesting. Okay. It floored me when I heard that. And her performance is stunning. And the song I, is just impossibly well written. And I think she well did written. the, like the, uh, I think it was with Little Big Town, wasn't it? Was she, she did like the country Cracker Barrel vocals. Oh, that I don't know. I don't know. That, but if you get a chance, that version um, is really good. It's also interesting because I'm from Colorado and uh, she, her dad was like a trainer or something for the Colorado Rockies, um, hmm. which is interesting. But, I wasn't uh, aware of that. Yeah. She's from, yeah, she's from there, right? Yeah. I think she's from Denver. Yeah. yeah she's or from Highlands Colorado. Ranch, which is, 
Yeah. Right up the street. So basically we're friends. Um, yeah, I, I get you. I, I'm tracking with you, my man. Yeah. Tracking with you. <laughs> That's basically how that works. Here's, here's, okay, how, so here's I'll, how you I'll, do it. Here's how you do it, Eric. This is how you're supposed to handle that. Okay. For the future. Here's how you handle that. Listen, okay. guys, she ignores me. <laughs> That's right. She is actually from my hometown and she should feel lucky. Yeah, she ignores So, yeah, me. this is uh, all... You'll have to check it out. So, Karen Fairchild and Kimberly... I can't read the rest of the name. I think that's Little Big Town. Yeah, that's Little Big Town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. But, yeah, that version is really good. They play it live. It was one of the Cracker Barrel things, which was uh, very surprisingly good. So, Adam, I want to get your... Finally get your fifth. I think there was a fifth pick. I think there probably is. That would be challenging because you're spanning. You haven't mentioned, uh, yeah, you haven't mentioned George Strait, which kind of. Yeah, I uh, know. I, unquestionably, I love George Strait, but because I'm a songwriter, I tend to gravitate towards songwriters. Yeah. Just and George Jones was not. Uh, Vern Gosden wrote some, so I'll grant those those caveats. But for the most part, my mind is scanning songwriters, you know, um, so of course, George Strait would unquestionably be on the list. I think that, I mean, it should almost be a given for any country music fan, but I'm trying to think of a final uh, artist songwriter to impose my own restrictions on the top five. It's difficult for me to uh, pull that out of my brain right now. I'll tell you what, I always, I'll tell you, Eric, I always loved Vince Gill's Mm writing and and obviously his voice is unmistakable but look at the look at the contrast here eric if you're familiar with vince's music at all his music uh oh i have one i i probably would put brad paisley as my fifth pick but i'm going to continue to talk about george i'm sorry vince gill for a second and i'll come back to brad and tell you why because i have my reasons so okay good um vince gill um his voice is so not country his voice is just gloriously crooner, but his songwriting and the production that Tony Brown did on his on his songs is so gorgeously country uh, from the style of his writing. So there is this beautiful contradiction I always enjoyed in his songs where you have this voice that just doesn't seem to match the content, but he pulls it off so masterfully and so tastefully that he always sucked me in with his performances and his songs. They're, they're, again, they're simple, old, classic country songs, but they're just, most of the time, they're just true and really impactful. Brad Paisley. Mm. Um, I, I had to think for a second, but I would definitely put Brad Paisley on this list. And um, because, of, as you can imagine, his songwriting prowess um, I'm a big fan of his performing, like his singing and obviously his guitar playing. Uh, it takes a tremendous talent to write your songs, sing your songs well, and then perform with a guitar like that. And then if you talk about the concert setting, the live setting, to do all, you know, to have all those elements come together and have every song that he releases just consistently be strong and solid, even if it doesn't end up being your favorite song, you can't deny the craft. Um. Yeah, Brad Paisley by far. Yeah, definitely on the list. Super talented. Uh, yeah. Obviously, he went fishing 
and dumped a girl in a song. So he wrote that when he was in college at Belmont. One of the greatest songs. I mean, just and, and I, I think there's something about it too. Like you said, when you, when you actually write your songs, um, I th- th- that was kind of I. I think one of the appeals with like Chris Stapleton was it was like people. I, I think people assume that a lot of songwriters it, they do the songwriting because they're not very good at performing, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily the case at all. And yeah. maybe a lot of the guys just say, hey, I don't want to be in the limelight. I don't want to tour. Yeah. I don't want to do all of that. Um, and, you know, if you get a lot of them, obviously you can make a pretty good, pretty good living off of it as well. Yeah. Um, Adam, I want to transition now. Um, we talked about some of the mountain peaks, some of those experiences. But your life is, uh, there, there's been several experiences that you've had, we'll get into, where I said to you, what are the chances of that? being like the one person would experience a number one and then some things that are kind of rank as like, I don't know what's the opposite of a number one, like just the bottom it's the Valley, the pit, some of those experiences. So uh, some of it is the transition. You end up in Louisville going to seminary <laughs> working for yours truly uh, at an oil change facility, which is not quite the same as being number one. Um, but even in that phase, I remember one of the things going on at the time was your wife's uh, liver transplant issues with that. So I guess sort of start there and, and we can just start to unpack that. Yeah, here's where you're going to notice a change in my tone of voice and in my um, disposition. Because mm-hmm. for the last hour and a half or so that we've been talking, you have tapped into the glory days. And for me to recount those stories in my mind and rehash them and tell you those stories and talk about them, I've been giggling Mm. and laughing because it's thoroughly enjoyable to remember those days. I do not regret being a songwriter on Music Row because I told you at the beginning of this uh, interview that it's it's my first love. I will always be writing songs no matter what. And so, man, it's a joy to recount those stories. It's what you would call a, um, a delightful providence, right? Delightful mm. providences of God brought about those, those incidents that we just recounted. I'm thankful for them. Um, but you're right, Eric. Uh, there is something in the eternal counsel of the Lord that determined before the beginning of time. It's crazy, isn't it, Eric, to think I'm teaching my kids about the Trinity and about the Lord God and how to understand Him. And, and, and I'm trying to help them understand that there's, because everything that God knows, he has always known. There's never been a time where he did not decree this or know that or like sit down and draft up plans. So it's hard. It's just, so God in his eternal counsel, as it regards me, how he could regard me and you is just also mind boggling. Like the psalmist says, like, why, why would you regard me? But he has regarded us. We got to take ownership of that and embrace that. And there's something in his eternal counsel, Eric, where he decided, and I'm definitely not the only one, certainly not the first one, where he just decided he was going to bring about a series of very peculiar, difficult providences and to impose them upon me and my wife and our family and our household. Uh, And it was going to look and feel a lot like the first two chapters of Job. Because Mm. Job starts out with a number one party in every sense of the word. Mountaintops, righteous man, praying for his kids' sins, 
you know, a working heart, a man of means, a man blessed of God. We can only imagine the details of what Job's righteousness looked like before the Lord. And here's where I, I see, I'm not trying to be funny or joke around when I say this. I'm not trying to draw a parallel between my righteousness at the time of the music events that we've talked about, because it's categorically not true. I've already told you that was a time of great spiritual immaturity in my life and youthfulness mm. in the faith, if you will. So I'm not drawing the parallel there. I'm only drawing the parallel in the quote unquote success, like the a man of mean, like a man of success, a man who's worked hard and has a lot. That that might be a fair parallel. Yeah. When the story of loss starts. So walk me through, I guess, the stuff with your wife, because that's where I kind of first intersected with what was going on. Yeah. And, and I'll say too, I mean, like you and I have talked about this quite a bit and it's, it's just so interesting. I, I've had people say the same thing to me. They're like, Oh, you know, uh, kind of where you talk to young men and they're like, oh, where you are in your life, you know, you, you've got work that's meaningful and you know, some things that are put together. Um, people can kind of see one thing, you know, uh, but, Oh, you had a, you had a number one, you know, Adam's life must just be so peachy. And a lot of people want to leave it there because I think the reality is when we get into some of this stuff, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, you've shared your story with me. Um, I think we've both either been in tears or at the point of tears because it's, it's literally like God is taking us through these valleys and it is hard. It is very hard to remember in the midst of them that like Job, you were just as favored when you're at the bottom as when you were at the top. So you were true. never more elect, never more loved, never so more true. secure in Christ. But the, the experience is just so different. And I think a lot of people, it's, it's easy to want the success parts of the story. Um, but then to have the other parts is really hard. So uh, your wife has, I think by the time you were working for me, if I remember right, she had had her liver transplant. It, it, when Vanderbilt. I met you, she had. Uh, okay. I want to clarify a bit of chronology in a second, but first I want to say this based on what you just said, brother. Well said, thank you. Yeah. But let me say this. You're right when you said at the very end there that you know we, we want the success. And that's true, but I'm going to tell you with every fiber of conviction in my soul that when I'm done conveying to you this next epic in our family's testimony, I, I hope to convince you of the fact that I genuinely now desire infinitely more, not the suffering, but what it has produced in me that can only come through the suffering. Mm. All I did. It's a particular glory. It is a, it is a particular glory. And it, it, all I did was just rehash James chapter one. Like you, no one ever tells you to rejoice in the suffering. James tells you to rejoice in what the suffering produces, which as Ryan Fullerton at Emmanuel Baptist in Louisville, where I was member for a long time, where Ryan, when he preached with this, he said, trials and suffering produces in us the very thing that we pray earnestly for. And that is holiness. That is sanctification. Mm. Like that's, that's glorious. That's and that's the money, Eric. That's the money. Money is not the money. Like when I was writing songs on the road, we'd get a line and we go, "That's the money line." Oh, that's the one. You know, that's going to be it. Like money is not the money. Uh, the the lack of the avoidance of suffering 
is not the money. Eric, I cannot emphasize how profound this dynamic is. I'm not implying you don't get what I'm saying. I'm just worked up because this is now my life's uh, love, right? So it's trying to help believers and even non-believers understand the world begins their polemic against the possible truthfulness of Christianity by positing and insisting that if there was a good and holy God, there would not be suffering. And that, mm. that, that pronouncement, uh, they think they stop all arguments with it. No, that's where my argument starts, because that pronouncement begins with a faulty premise. And the faulty mm. premise, Eric, is that the greatest good that could be known by mankind is the absence of all discomfort and displeasure. You see what I'm saying? Think about this for a second. Their premise is because the absence of discomfort and unpleasantness and suffering is the greatest good, then if there was a God, he would be working to accomplish that greatest good. But what you and I know from the gospel is that's not at all the greatest good. It is the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that is the greatest good. He, the enjoyment, the knowledge of him, the enjoyment of him, the worship of him forever is not just the greatest good, but it's the very purpose for which we've been created. And that, my dear brother, can only come through suffering. Through yeah, suffering. That's, the, that's the intense part, um, Adam. And so many times when I was in these kind of low spots. Well, well, two things. Number one, it seems like providentially, uh, I had a friend who would tell me this. I said, how do you make it through the difficulty? You know, and this person was going through war and just family struggles and all these things, just difficult things. And uh, they told me, they said, well, number one, I remind myself right now, nobody's shooting. Mm. And it's, it's, it's about perspective, right? Amen. Yeah. Realizing there are people in the world who are going through, you, you know, go through a war. It's a hellacious situation. People are killing your friends, that sort of thing. But then the other part of it too, is just realizing that, you know, I, I would be reading the scripture and I'm like, I want encouragement, I, you know, and, and really I think in the midst of some of my deepest sufferings, the encouragement I wanted was like God saying, Hey, it's, it's all going to get better. Mm-hmm. And I would find a passage like Hebrews 12. It's mm-hmm. in the Proverbs. He's quoting the Proverbs. But Hebrews 12, and God just says, you know, be glad. God's treating you as a son. He loves you. And I think it gets to exactly what you're saying in a very simple way, which is that a father's goodness and generosity and love mm. is manifest in exposing us to suffering. And uh, my current pastor now, Brian Sove, he said this to me a number of times, and I heard it with tears several times because it was very difficult for me to hear. But, you know, he basically just said, he said, you are sinning if you do not think and you do not pray and you do not act and believe that the father loves to give good gifts. And I, I had said to him in Amen. the midst of my trials, I said to him, I think my father gave me a serpent. Mm. I asked for a loaf of bread and I think my father gave me a serpent. And I'll never forget this. I think he was quoting Toby Sumter, but he said, if your father gave you a serpent, then it's because you needed to slay that dragon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and just realizing like all of it was in good. Yep. Um, but in the midst of it, I think this is where songs like uh, Shane and Shane, yeah. though you slay me, 
Mm-hmm. Right. These are the moments where you kind of really get to find the glory of the faith that God has given us graciously. And, and it is very, um, it's very interesting because I, I podcasted on a lot of stuff and the podcasts that seem to leave the biggest impact with people are the ones where I will talk about suffering Yeah, because I think th- Jordan Peterson is right. That is actually the, the common human experience. Amen. We, 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 we shouldn't respond in suffering. Like what is going on? Yeah. It, it should have been this cookie cutter hallmark life and it's not. And, and then we act, we act surprised. So Adam, I want to ask you on, on some of the details. Um, just walk me through the chronology now. So, so your wife has, and we were just talking about this like seven years, but I, I think technically that was what, 2000, that's like 10 years going back to your wife, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I'm first of all, grateful for the opportunity to share this epic of our family's yeah. testimony because it's so important to me. And I hope it's helpful to other brother, <clears throat> other brothers and sisters who might be listening. Um, yeah. yeah. So quick chronology. So I was in seminary a couple of times. The first time oh, okay. I went was my actual MDiv work from 2005, or, um, and I'll get into how that happened, un- uh, until 2007 when I graduated. And then we moved to the mission field in Canada. We spent three years there, during which Christy got her transplant in 2009. And then we came back after our funding ended and a time of wilderness and and perplexion and even depression on my part and praying that the Lord would let us go back into Canada because we loved Canada. He answered our prayers in 2015. I moved to um, Thunder Bay, Ontario to pastor a church there. And that's when I fell ill, which I'll go into more detail. And then, uh, oh, I beg your pardon, Eric. So after we came back from Newfoundland, uh, the mission field in 2011, Um, I had a, like a brief four month stint as a pastor in Southern California, uh, and it was a disaster. And a lot of it was my fault dealing with anger. Right. And you encountered me just as we moved back to Louisville from that brief encounter in California. And then I enrolled in Southern to do some THM work. So you encountered me at my second stint in seminary, so to speak, which that was short lived because of time and money. Uh, so just as a matter of chronology, so I'll try to keep this as succinct as possible because I don't intend to to bore with details. But it is important to see how the difficult providence of the Lord, the difficult providences of the Lord have played out in our family's life, if you're to understand how the Lord has used those things in our lives now. Um, so you mentioned Christy's liver condition. When she was 15, she was diagnosed with a liver illness. And uh, right after we got married, um, in fact, Eric, it was hilarious. It was 2002 when she was finally put on the liver transplant list. That's not what's funny, of course. But 2002 <laughs> is the same year I signed that big publishing deal with Sony. And in between my first publishing deal and that publishing deal, there was two years where I didn't have a publishing deal. So even though the advances that I was paid with a publishing deal were low, at least it was something. Now I was just waiting tables, just doing, you know, just doing whatever I could to earn some money and trying to still write songs so I could get the next publishing deal. It was a really difficult time. So when, when we had interest from this publisher for to sign me, Christy was in the hospital admitted for a bad infection, and she that's when we were told she was going to have to be put on the transplant list. You talk about an emotional bomb that's dropped on you, right? I mean, you're, you're uncertain, you're fearful, you don't know if she's going to live through this. I mean, it's horrible. And I had the meeting 
the second meeting with this publisher to talk about numbers and figures and details that morning at like 10 o'clock. And she was, I had stayed with her in the hospital overnight the night before, slept on the floor, the whole nine yards. And I get, we get up the next morning, we're kind of groggy. And I'm like, uh, yeah, you know, I've got that meeting with Jody today. She goes, you are going to that meeting. <laughs> Don't, I'll be fine. I got my jello squares here. You go to that meeting and do. So as it turns out, I went and got signed. So she went on the transplant list in 2002. And again, I mean, it's hard to explain how emotionally challenging that was. Again, we're, we're, we're spiritual infants at this time. Uh, not not well equipped at all to respond to this kind of a thing in a way that honors the Lord, um, but uh, by two th- we started right thereafter the process of trying to adopt because she couldn't conceive because of her illness, and as I already alluded to, that's a very costly and time consuming, emotionally draining process. You you're asked oh, to check time. boxes of what kind of a child you'd be willing to take, you know, and this kind, this kind. I mean, that's that's horrifying, you know, and you feel guilty for not checking a box. And um, so by 2004, remember, that's the year my song was released. We adopted Jacob that fall, right when my song was released to radio. I told you we were working on finishing up his nursery. He was, he was born October 18th, 2004, and, that, and we brought him home from the hospital. He's been ours ever since. And um, those, those events were happening at the same time. Again, lots of joyous things. But here she is now on the transplant list, and that's kind of a hit, a big hit. Her future's uncertain. Uh, is she going to be able to continue to work? Is she going to be able to be a mother and take care? I mean, all these things. Well, I told you right at, at 2004, right at the time, Eric, my song was being released to radio, I felt a very strong sense of call to ministry. Now, remember, I just got through telling you how my whole life's goal since I was 16 was to be a country music songwriter. And I can't explain to you this call that I sensed from the Lord. I just know it was there. And mm-hmm. uh, it was there so much that it, it drew me away from this now successful songwriting career that I'd worked so hard to get to. But brother, I'm going to be honest with you. When I left the music business to start seminary at New Orleans in 2004, in the fall of 04, I, w- I never once remember having the thought, well, I'm giving up my dream to go be in, not at all. Like I was, you could not have kept me away from it. You could not have stopped me from doing it. It's what I wanted to do. There was no like, oh, here I'm giving. No, there's none of that involved. I mean, yeah. I dare say it wasn't, didn't even feel like a sacrifice. You know, it felt like something I, I wanted to do for the Lord. So I took two semesters of seminary by extension in Alabama before we actually moved to the campus of New Orleans Seminary in, um, in June of 2005. Again, I mean, I was a spiritual infant. This, I, by the way, for people who don't remember their I history, know this you is going to be good timing. <laughs> it's going to be good timing. All right, 2005, June, just check your calendars. Um, Eric, I mean, my choice in seminary, everything about this just should betray the fact that I was not well-led, well-read. I, when I started seminary, Eric Kahn, I had not read my Bible. Well, don't I'm you remember, pr- Adam, like, I, I, even at Southern, that. even at Southern, I remember taking Don Whitney's course on spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, one of the uh, final exam requirements is you've got to be able to recite the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. You are, after all, in seminary, and you have to say the books of the Bible in order. And I immediately panicked 
And I went home and I was like, Hey babe, do you still have that little kids like cassette that like teaches you how to sing the Bible books in order? I, I think people would be shocked actually. How many people go to seminary? Not, not, not with some of those things. Yeah. The Lord knew what he was doing. I bought the Bible on CD, Eric, and I put it in the car on my two and a half hour one way drives to the <laughs> extension campus. Are you you're serious? I'm serious. Wow. I'm serious. Now I get to New Orleans Seminary in June of 05 to start actual on-campus work. I take a couple mm-hmm. of summer courses because it's clearly in the middle of summer before the fall semester started. Fall semester starts the beginning of August and uh, like two weeks into class, Hurricane Katrina hits. And uh, we were we were advised to um, to uh, evacuate by the mayor, and so we did. And we just took I, all I took was my guitars, our computer tower, just in case something got wet. And not like um, it will. A couple of pictures, like picture albums. We had all of our possessions crammed into this uh, oh. two, two bedroom, uh, first floor apartment on the campus. And Wait, is and it we left- campus downtown? It's not quite downtown. Um, it's it's closer to the the lower ninth ward, which you've heard much about, uh, oh, than it yeah. is to downtown. But it, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely in the city. But um, you're not staring down skyscrapers per se. But uh, very, Man. very, very rough part of town. Let's just say. And um, so we left. Our our second vehicle was there because we're not going to leave in two vehicles. We're just we just headed north to Tennessee for a couple of days to stay away from the storm, stay with some old church friends, and then drive back down. You know, <laughs> everybody knows that that's not what happened. And we, we lost everything we owned. Now, Eric, put this in context. My number one party for my song was April of 2005, two months before I moved to, to New Orleans. I had that number one party. Two months later, I moved to New Orleans. Two months after that, we lose everything in, in Hurricane Katrina. So if you were at the mountaintop, um, you just fell into an avalanche uh, of of dynamite proportions. Um, now, practically speaking, you might think we had all those royalties. Yeah, but it takes at least a year for those to start showing up after you actually have the activity. So we were the poorest rich people um, that that you would ever ever want to to know. But brother, so what did I'm, you do at that point? I mean, yeah, I remember, brother. I remember again. I consider this time very young in my spiritual maturity. But mm. even then, brother, even then, I remember like it was yesterday, as I closed my eyes, we pulled up. They finally let us back onto campus in October to come and try to retrieve anything, if there was anything retrievable. We get back on campus. There's a guy with shotgun, uh, t- guys with shotguns guarding the front gate because, uh, remember, everybody was looting everything at the time. We get on campus, go back to the back of campus where our apartment was, <coughs> and, excuse me, the National Guard had come through and, like, broken all the doors open to, uh, to air everything out. And so, uh, all the doors of all the buildings were, were open. And we came, we parked in the back of the apartment. And tried to go in the back entrance and there was a screen door and I tried to pull on it and it had been caked shut by the water and the heat. So, <coughs> sorry, the door had was painted and you know what happens. It swells in the hu- humid air and the heat. And then after being underwater, it just like cemented it shut. So I couldn't get it open. So we go back around to the front and we notice the front door just wide open. Brother. I cannot describe the smell that was inside that apartment, but you can just Horrible. imagine 
more than six feet of water was in our apartment for weeks, just sitting there in the, in the New Orleans oh. August heat. Everything, I've still got pictures. Everything in the apartment was, com- it looked like some people came in and just did everything they possibly could to throw everything onto the floor. Everything oh, was no. upside down. We go into the one bathroom and brother, the bathtub is still full of that water. Because it had it was, oh. the drains were all stopped up, so that black water is still in the bathtub. We had, of no. course, masks on. You couldn't stay in there very long because literally you would feel your lungs burning, breathing it in. So we just made our way through there with gloves and boots, and my wife and my mother and I, and we're trying to find anything that we can possibly salvage. We ended up with two things. One, both were glass. One was a glass picture frame. Uh, that of course was not damaged by the water. I have that downstairs in the living room right now. And then uh, a glass uh, piggy jar, piggy bank that was Jacob's. Um, and of course it hadn't been damaged because it's glass but and we still it. have that. Yeah. And even it had some of that water inside where it had come down through the hole. So we had to, you know, shake all the water and, and clean it out real good. But we, we, we salvaged those two things. Uh, the other car had been completely submerged in water. It was a loss. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Christy, Christy really said a profound thing about this as we were driving through town, just up and down the streets, looking at everything. Every single lawn was brown because it had been underwater and it was all dead. Every house was destroyed. She says, it's one thing if your house burns down and you lose everything. I mean, that's, you lose everything. It's devastating. It's another thing when all your neighbors lose everything too. Everything's Uh. gone. The whole, the whole community's gone. The whole neighborhood's gone. And it does make it a different emotional experience. But I want to say this, brother. Um, how, how does a man who loves the Lord process an event like that? Mm. And again, John Piper said it so right a few years back when, when the, uh, the big 08 crash happened in America. And it really hit the world. He said yeah. this. I'll never forget it. He said, <laughs> in America recessions come and go and for the rest of the world they just come Mm. and what i'm referring to here brother is that there's so many people brothers and sisters in christ around the world that would be hearing this story and going yeah that's terrible that's Um, like every year for us but it's just a tuesday it's a tuesday and we have to admit that right like I'm, i'm exaggerating a bit but you know, this is the experience, the daily experience of every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ in North Korea, in Iran, in Venezuela, in China, uh, you know, I mean, and soon to be here, I mean, you know, with, with, with opposition that we, we see increasing. So, anyways, how does a man respond to that? I remember, brother, what I'm trying to say, what I want to say, Eric, is that if it were up to me, I know how I would have processed and responded to that scene. I know how I would have. It would have been panic. Oh my God, what are we going to do? Why, God, why'd you let this happen? And I'm not implying that there was none of that in this, but the overwhelming memory I have from that is that overwhelming feeling of peace that I felt when my hand first reached onto that screen door to try to open it. It was palatable, Eric. Really? It was a peace that really did surpass my understanding in that moment. And your understanding, if you'd been looking upon me in that moment and had stuck a microphone in my face to interview me, it would have surpassed your understanding too. It was a piece that had nothing to do and was completely out of accord with the scene that I was looking at. And that's got Jesus's name written all over it, brother. 
And yeah, out of incredible. that experience, oh, it was incredible, brother. It was such a sweet and faithful provision by the Lord Jesus to me as his child, as his mm. brother, in fact. It was a, the sweetest, palatable drawing near of him whose, very, whose presence is a very good help in times of trouble, right? It was a faithfulness to do everything for me that he said he would do on the on the after side of inflicting this difficult providence upon me and my soul and my mm. family. And what it did, brother, one of the I have a couple of husbandy leadership milestones in my in my memory as how the Lord where the Lord really helped me to step up and and be a, a better Christian husband, a better man to my wife that I'm so grateful for and I would never have done if left to my own self. One was when we found out about her, her transplant. One was when she, we, uh, when she, when we were adopting Jacob, and we were sitting at lunch at a Wendy's on Music Row, and she and I talk about this from time to time. And I remember sitting across, and we're trying to figure out: is she going to continue to work, or is she going to care for this new baby? And again, we were we were baby Christians, man. I mean, I can tell you how I feel about it now, but I'm being honest from back then. And I remember sitting across yeah. the table from her and saying to her, honey, I know that if we commit ourselves to, to, to obey the Lord faithfully in ordering our household as he's told us to, I believe he'll provide. Because Eric, you know, from what I've told you, it made no financial sense to take her from the workforce. I mean, none. This was way before my song hit or anything. We were dying already. And here we're talking about bringing her out of that into the home to care for this child that we're, I said, why are we bringing this child into our home to have somebody else potentially raise him? Now, don't misunderstand, brother. I, I, I am not passing judgment on anyone's um, need. My mother ha- could not stay at home and work for us. And when she was a single mother, like she, she had to work, right? we didn't have, we wouldn't have food. We know that we live in a fallen world and these things are not always possible as the Lord has revealed, but we are still commanded to obey him and tr- as believers, we, 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 we're commanded to obey him and trust him that if we endeavor to obey what he's revealed, he will in his supernatural, mysterious, providential provision provide for that. And that's what I was exhorting her and us to do at that lunch at Wendy's. That was supernatural. That was not out of me. My father in heaven revealed it to me, not flesh and blood. And Another milestone was this event right here at, at Katrina, mm-hmm. uh, where I stood there and I just felt this spiritual fortification of my soul, brother. It's the only way to describe it, where I felt like the spirit was really fortifying, giving me a spiritual backbone to respond to this in a way that was faithful, mm-hmm. that did not panic, that did not curse the Lord, that did not shake my fist. And it was, it was, Again, I, I was very young in Bible. It was revelatory to me. Like it, it, it would come later to match what I read. This is what I mean by this. It would come to match what, what I would see and cherish in the scriptures for myself, right? Hmm. And yeah. Um, yeah. So Adam, I'm curious. The Katrina thing happens. Um, your wife. Um, it, so at that point, what what year are we? We're 2005, so uh, we trans we get transferred to Southern. Uh, you know, Katrina refugees. We were Your taken wife in by has Southern. A transplant. Not yet. She's still on the list. Okay, so she's still on the she, list at that point. She went so on she the list for a long time too. 
She waited seven years. So she didn't get her transplant until 09. So now we're on the other side of Katrina, get to Southern in Louisville, which is her hometown. Gracious provision from the Lord to be near her family to help us recover from this. Southern takes me in, puts us up in, in housing. Very gracious. Now I'm in this, you know, Calvinist school that I despise because I'm a committed <laughs> Arminian. I'm just being honest, right? Like I was very, you know, very unhappy with being there. But brother, remember, don't forget, I was already, I had already committed to reading my Bible. Well, guess what happens when you read your Bible? Become a Calvinist. So, so, so um, I made that change. I mean, I made that transition in the first year yeah. I was at Southern. And you mentioned Don Whitney. Listen, when I transferred to Southern, I transferred five weeks into the semester. And I transferred, one of the classes I transferred into was Don Whitney's spiritual disciplines class. Oh, really? That was oh, one of great. my introductions to the puritanical environment yeah. of Southern that was totally different from the not puritanical environment of New Orleans Seminary, right? And so I was, you couple that with my own scripture reading and what the Lord was doing in my soul after Katrina, and it was a formula for some very explosive sanctification and delighting in the Lord. Um, I was in Stuart Scott's biblical counseling class. It was his first semester teaching it there. I was blown away. I've told people before, I've told them before, the I, in my view, the way I became a Calvinist was largely through biblical counseling, the class and the content and just the whole concept. It's what sealed well, the deal on my soul for sure. It, it was interesting because uh, Stuart Scott's class, I think I was taking, I was doing a biblical counseling course load, but I think taking him for like marriage and family counseling. And there was one class. So this is before I worked at Valvoline. This would have been like maybe 08, somewhere in there, 07, 08. Uh, no, it would have been 08, maybe after. But anyway, so um, my wife at the time, this this one thing I always tell people, right? They're like, oh, you do the Hard Men podcast. You talk about patriarchy and you talk about all these things. Well, that's just because you always grew up with it. Okay, so let me just paint a picture here. I'm going to school. My wife is working and has our firstborn son with her at work. I am not working, but going to school full time. I am literally, and and it's just pure ignorance. Had no clue that was wrong. Shouldn't have been doing it. Um, And then finally, um, we're having all this marital strife. You know, we'd been married for two years or something. You have your first kid. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's really weird. My wife seems like she kind of resents me. And um, I can't figure out why. And, And literally, I had no clue how like dumb I was at the point. So anyway, uh, we're in Stuart Scott's class and I think he had seen this a lot and he kind of, he didn't lose control of himself, but he kind of went on a little bit of a tirade, a, a very controlled Southern Baptist style tirade. But anyway, Stuart goes off and he goes, Hey, I, I got a question for you guys. I talked to all these students. I got all these guys, their wives are working. They're not, their family lives are falling apart because seminary is really stressful for young families. He goes, I just, somebody point me to the verse in scripture where it says that you're, you have to go to seminary, that that's one of your main duties as a man. And I was like, I haven't totally read the Bible, but I'm pretty sure that one's not in there. So, so, and then he, he starts going through it and he goes, what are your duties as a man? He's like, somebody start calling it out. So we start going through, what are your duties as a man? Be a provider, be a protector, take care of your family. He who does not care for his own is worse than an unbeliever. And I'm, Adam, I'm starting to get convicted. 
Amen, brother. Amen. I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, that's uncomfortable. And I left the class thinking <laughs> it was the beginning. It was a seed. And I left the class and I went, uh, I went and I talked to my pastor uh, in Louisville. And I said, yeah, there's kind of some things going on in my marriage. Uh, here's all the things my wife does wrong. And that was a poor move. And he let me know that. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, Eric, you know, I'm really impressed by your ability to catalog other people's sins. You don't seem very good at cataloging your own. And I was like, young man, just, you know, getting what you need, which is like, you know, it was kind of one of the first times in my life you mentioned this, but like having a father figure who was like, Hey man, take the log out of your own eye, deal with your own sin. And one of the things we dealt with was like, you need to get a job. Like whatever happens, you need to work. And uh, so I started, this is how I ended up at Valvoline. Very humbling. Wow. I, I, I applied for uh, as many jobs as I could find. I get, end up getting a very glorified job as a $9 an hour technician at Valvoline Instant Oil Change. After Wait a minute, my they way paid up, you $9? Wasn't it something like that? Eight? I only bucks? got eight. Okay, well, it was close. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think, <laughs> I, think, I think senior tech, you were like... Dude, I thought it was great at the time. I made senior tech and they're like $9.37. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was on top of the world. So anyway, yeah, that, that was part of that process too. In the midst of all these difficult trials where, you know, God is forming in us these, it, it's one thing to read it in a book, but it's another thing to say, like I had to go to my wife and repent. In fact, our pastor was really gracious to me. And he told me, he was like, you know, I think what would be really good for you is just to stand up before the congregation and confess your failure and your sin. <laughs> and I did. And you know what? It was one of the best experiences of my life because I did. I was like, you know, I've failed my family. and uh, Oh, yeah, that's re- glorious, brother. I need to repent. And I did. And it was so crazy because it was like every man in that church after I was done, they were like waiting to give me a hug and be like, I'm so proud of you. Like yeah, amen. Kind yeah. of been there one way or the other. Yeah. So really neat experiences through it. Um, Adam, so I, I, I want to, uh, there's more to the story. Yeah, I'll go quicker. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm just saying that the next, so Louisville, this is where I, I don't know the story as much. Yeah. Because I left. Uh, I left Louisville to take a job at Guns and Ammo Peterson's Hunting in Illinois. Uh, so I moved on from that. Um, I, I know think because I lived thing, in your house for a month. That's right. I forgot yep. about that. What yep. a great experience when you found out my gas fireplace was leaking. Yeah. I promise I didn't do that intentionally. We have found <laughs> gas leaks in so many rental houses we've been in, brother. We joke about it, but it's so funny. We're, we're just gassy people. We are gassy. So, uh, Adam, after that, what, uh, what happened? What was next? Um, You guys went back to Canada? So we went there for the first time after I graduated Southern in 07. So my my whole life and faith was completely transformed at Southern in in just every possible good way in my view, looking back. Like I became a Calvinist in my theology and uh, just intensely grew. You know, if if seminary does what it's supposed to do, you get really sanctified. It's a glorious thing. Um, we, we, uh, left seminary in December of 07, um, and were, uh, called to be church planting missionaries on the island of Newfoundland in far Eastern Canada. 
And uh, that was 07. And so Christy had been on the transplant list since 02. So she's five years in. Her doctor at Vanderbilt says, yeah, you know, we asked him, is this stupid to think? No, do it, you know, and, and um, come back home if you get into trouble. And so we moved to Canada and um, the three years that we were there, brother, is a subject of a whole other podcast. It was just glorious, difficult, challenging, humbling, but just um, glorious work that I miss so badly. But right in the middle of the three years we were there, Christy finally, her health finally took the, the final turn down where she had been kind of flirting with sickness and managed by medication. But now in 09, it was clear she, was, she needed the transplant right away. And in fact, they called us and said, hey, she's next up. And so you guys have to be closer to Vanderbilt than, than you are five-day drive away. So we, not knowing, like this was a year and a half into our time in Newfoundland, we had ministry partners there that were helping us in the work, partnering, and things were going really well, slow, but well, and we were gaining momentum. And then we just packed up everything because we didn't know how long we'd be gone waiting for this one we got. So we drove, packed up the, the U-Haul, drove to Nashville five days, and we get to Nashville on a Tuesday, and she got her transplant that Friday. Wow. In May of 2009. Brother, for, this, for the sake of edifying your listeners, let me tell you quickly uh, the testimony of how that came about real quickly. Yeah. When I graduated Southern in 05, in 07, rather, uh, one of my dear buddies at the time uh, was uh, graduated the same day, and he was moving back to South Carolina to pastor a church near his hometown, and I was moving up to Canada. And so, we kept in touch. We were praying for each other, kind of encouraging each other in our new ministries. And of course, he knew all about Chrissy's sickness. He had known us for a couple of years while we were at seminary. And he was leading his church to, to, among, to pray for us, among other things, and, and to pray for our ministry there, but also for Christy's health. So when it came time for us to move, to come down for the transplant, those prayers kind of heightened because they realized there was an urgency now to this. So unbeknownst to us, we're making the five-day drive from Newfoundland, St. John's, Newfoundland, down to Nashville. And my wife is so sick. Jacob's like um, in 09. He was like four years old. Uh, five years old, and we're bouncing on this U-Haul down. And unbeknownst to us, in my friend's church, there's a family who has a family member who was in a terrible accident. And uh, he was rendered brain dead from this accident, unbeknownst to us. So that when we pull into Nashville on that Tuesday, the next morning, Wednesday, we're staying in a missionary house next to a Baptist church that knows does not know us at all. That's real near the hospital. They graciously opened up this home to us. The next morning, again, like six in the morning, we get this call from my friend who's the pastor. And he says to me, his question is, what is Christie's blood type? That's how he greets me. And I'm like, a negative. And he asked me for a couple more bits of information. He didn't really tell me what was going on. And he said, I'll call you back. And so I hung up with him and I went through that day like, what is going on? And um, I didn't hear anything back from him. So I figured that if anything was afoot, it just didn't work out. That was Tuesday. I'm sorry, that was Wednesday. So we go through our day Wednesday. Thursday, we get up, we do our thing, we go have lunch, and Christy's mom is down with us. We go to Walmart to get her suitcase, her, her, pack, her bag packed for the back of the, you know, in case we get the call. We're on our way back to the mission house from Walmart. And I will never forget, Eric, the, the stoplight I was sitting at, getting ready to turn left, and the phone rings, and it's her transplant coordinator. And they said, we have a liver for Christy. After seven years of waiting, and there it is mm. right there. So that was Thursday wow. afternoon. They said, get her to the hospital. We got her to the hospital Thursday night. 
Early Friday morning comes, and uh, and they're prepping her for surgery, and I'm in the room with her. Eric, can you imagine how nerve wracking that moment is? A, a tremendously serious no. surgery. I've got a four-year-old out in the hallway, out in the waiting room with my family and her family and this ministry up in Newfoundland. These years of marriage, we've now grown together and we've gone through these things and the Lord has us in this ministry. You know, we're living our lives together and now this. And I'm standing there and all of a sudden the surgeon comes in. Now, we've never met the surgeon. We know her, her transfer, her liver doctor has been with us for years, but we don't know the surgeon. He walks in, tall, stately man, and he starts telling us about what to expect and what the risks are. And brother, he looks at us and he says, at the end of that, he says, I talked to her doctor, Dr. Rayford, and he gave me permission to transplant her. And he said, he also told me about you guys and that you're, you know, what you're doing, you're serving as missionaries in Canada. He goes, I want you to know I'm a believer. And I've been praying this morning that God would use me as his instrument to serve you today. Wow. Another sweet and glorious, kind provision from the Father to a child who is reeling inside of his soul at what's mm. happening around him. Just the faithfulness of God. So what was the, what was the connection with the... I'm, I'm there. I'm there, buddy. I'm on the precipice. Okay. Okay. So, okay. As it turns out, uh, I mean, her, her surgery went wonderfully, but as it turns out, uh, the person who passed away in the accident was indeed a match, and that liver was designated to my wife by the family of this man who at the, his bedside remembered her and said, if it matches, we want his liver to go to her, and it did match, and they flew it from South Carolina to Nashville, and that's the liver that she has in her today that's had no problems, and since then, she's given birth twice to two healthy, our two, our two youngest healthy children. Uh, we now have three. That is incredible. Yeah. Just, um, that's the, probably the first time I can remember telling that story without crying. Uh, because it just, when I think about the providences that were involved in all of that timing and the connections and the surgeon who, um, when both of our children were born, you can imagine my wife had very decisively high risk pregnancies. So yeah. both of those babies were delivered at Vanderbilt under the supervision and cooperation with her liver people. And, um, both her liver specialist, who's now been with us all 24 years of our marriage and her surgeon who we met for the first time that morning will have pictures of both of them holding both newborn babies uh the the, the day they were born uh as little trophies of of the way that the lord used them to bless us and to bring benjamin and grace into the world and eric khan um benjamin and grace have both been converted in the last two years and love the lord and uh it's just amazing to see god's grace to them as as young christians it's it's mm. phenomenal yeah yeah, it's incredible as I think about your story, and there's actually more to it. Um, one of the mercies of God is that it, even in the, all of these sufferings, from Katrina to the grace of being brought then to Southern and how that shaped your life, and you know Christy's story and her liver and people praying, and you know you you wouldn't think. I remember thinking at the time, like you know, way back when you know, I, I heard about her condition, I was like, well you know, you're not going to be able to have children. Um, and, and then God blesses you guys with that. So it's, it, again, it's just this way that God has of putting these jewels of his grace in the midst of all of the suffering that makes them sweet. 
that, yeah, it just makes us appreciate them so deeply. Exactly. If that makes sense. No, it makes profound sense. Let me rephrase it. How would you know that God is a God of comfort if you never suffered? And how would you Mm. praise the mercy of his grace if you never sinned? I think it's Calvin that describes uh, all of this as the Lord's stage upon which he's performing this glorious drama. And Mm. I think of it as, I think of what you just said as, the, in these terms, the sufferings, the difficult providences, if you will, are that black backdrop against which those lights stick out all the more. Like you and I run out into the middle of the desert, middle of the day, and I pull out my little pen light. And I'm like, look at how cool this is. You know, I can't even see it. But we're out in the middle of the desert. I grew up in the desert. You go out in the middle of the desert, middle of the night, and there's, and there's, no, and there's cloud cover, dude. It's over. And you pull out a little pen light, you'd be, you'd be praising God for me in that moment so that we could find our way through, even with the, just a little light, so that these sufferings, they, they pronounce all the more gloriously the provisions of the Lord. And the second thing I would want you to, to, to know from, the, from this is that just like as sin abounds, so all the more God's grace abounds. In the same mm. way, Eric, as suffering in our lives has abounded, the provision of God and the and the um, uh, the oh, like the over, yeah, just the all sufficient provision of the Lord has abounded all the more. I could tell you for every sad suffering story, I could tell you this amazing provision story to go along with it, and that's our duty as believers, right? Yeah, it is, and I think it's um, w- one of the things that suffering has taught me. I- I'm sure you would say the same thing is. I really have a, a compassion. My heart breaks for people who do not know the Lord and have to suffer. Because if, if you don't, like you think about all the trials you've been through, if you didn't have that hope, if you didn't know that there was nothing that could separate you from the love of Christ, if you didn't know that God was working all things according to the counsel of his will for your good and his glory, if you didn't know that, and if you just thought it was random chaos and chance and whatever happens, happens, and we just don't know, and there's probably no point anyway. I could see why people would be so depressed in the midst of it. I know that even with chronic illness in general, uh, I remember my dad had open-heart surgery, and that, that's one of the things they told him. They are like, the biggest obstacle you'll have is depression because you know people are faced with their mortality, and you know they'll never be the same, so on and so forth. So that, that's like a really... It's a, it's a huge to actually have the comfort. Um, the other thing I want to ask you, Adam, in kind of this last phase is your, when I found out that you were having health problems and how severe they were, I think this is when I said to you in conversation, like, I don't want to be insensitive, but what are the chances that two people who are married to each other would have transplant type requirements. And, and I remember you saying something like they're not high. I'll tell you that like infinitely small that that would be the case. Um, so I guess just walk, walk me through when did you start having health problems? I know that's been ongoing for many, many years. Yeah. Seven years, almost eight years in 2015 is when it first became known to me that I had these issues. Uh, Christy had her transplant in 2009 um, Grace and Ben were born in 2011 and 2012. 
we lost our mission uh, project because of funding and that broke our hearts. That was 2011. Then, then our daughter Grace was born mm. and we went through a period from 2011 to 2015 of total wasteland. Just Lord, I left the music business to pursue ministry and you let me see the heights of that in Newfoundland. And now I'm here working two jobs. I'm, I'm selling uh, clothes at Dillard's and I'm selling um, and I'm waiting tables. I'm working two jobs. Um, my wife is at home with these babies that you gave us and we can't pay. I can't even keep up with her medical bills, let alone pay our bills. And I'm doing everything I can think of to try to to do that. And, and, and by the way, what am I supposed to do with my life? After all, I thought this minute, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, uh, I, I spiraled. So what I want to say as a heading to this chapter is brother, where my soul is today with the Lord as regards suffering and the goodness of it, I have not always been, I have shaken my fist at the Lord and I'm describing a season of that right now. So from 2011 to 2015, back in Louisville, scratching our heads, trying to make it work. And my thinking just spiraled down. I ended up in really bad depression. So much so I became suicidal. And that's no, that's not words I ever thought I would ever say about myself. It's just, mm. I don't know, you know, just like my personality and my outlook on life. Just, I never would have thought I would say those words about myself. It's a reality. It's, it's a sinful pattern that I allowed myself to get into. And I ended up uh, in that in that horrible place, one of our pastors at Emmanuel, Jeff King, uh, was was instrumentally used by the Spirit to help me through that period, uh, and literally to just it, the door just slammed shut on that, and I and I was able to emerge into hopefulness again through the Scriptures, through counseling, through the Scriptures, and it was it was totally the Lord that did that. Uh, I'm grateful for that. And and all that time, brother, we had been praying that the Lord would let us have Canada back, as I mentioned. Like, let us have, we want, we want to minister in Canada. They need people. And he he answered that prayer in 2015 in February by calling me to be a pastor of a of a Baptist church up there in Thunder Bay. And and we moved there. And literally two months after we got there, I end up in the emergency room with horrible abdominal pain. And uh, as it turns out, they did surgery to repair what they thought was a hernia. But when they actually got in there, they didn't find a hernia. And so I woke up from the surgery. Nothing changed. No answers. No, no change. And from literally that day, Mother's Day of 2015, until I speak to you right now, I've had debilitating belly pain for, for seven, almost eight years every day. And some days mm-hmm. are better than others. But hey, think twice before you ever say to your young son, hey, quit your belly aching. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can oh. vouch like, man, if I have a belly ache because I just ate something bad, that's one thing. But tomorrow's going to be a new day. There's been no new day for me, brother. It just, I can't, it just I can't describe, I can't describe how debilitating. So what, so, so we ended up being in Thunder Bay after we'd been praying and praying and praying that we could do this again. He answers, he gives it back to us. And then three months after we're in there, he takes it right away because now I'm so sick. I can't even prepare sermons. I miss so many Sundays and I'm the new pastor, Right. And so we endured for a year, but it was clear that this was not going to work out. So now we're back in Louisville again. Lord, what are you doing? Like, why, why not just, why, why, why Thunder Bay at all? Why not just not give us Thunder Bay, right? Because clearly you were going to take it away from us again. But so why did you give us the ecstasy of 
and a renewed hopefulness about what I was to do with my life. Why'd you give that to us? And then rip it away again. What are you doing? Yeah. Right. And, and brother, if I had not had that season of depression and even suicidal ideation before this happened, and if I had not learned through a good, healthy church ministry, how to respond biblically to that and, and in a healthy way to that, there's no way I would have made it through what was coming up ahead. I can tell you for a fact, I would never, if you piled that on top of what I had just experienced in that season of depression, there's no way mm. it would never have, I wouldn't have made it. Praise God that he sanctified my soul and taught me how to respond to difficult sufferings through that prior season. And I did not know and could not have known at the time that I was first diagnosed and, or first became sick. I could not have known that it would take like three or four years for more for me to be diagnosed. There would be over 20 hospitalizations, multiple abdominal mm. surgeries where I wake up and I've been, I'm not talking about laparoscopic. I'm talking split you from your sternum down to your below your belly button and open mm. you up and look inside and they can't find what the, what the image said was there. So I have a rare disease called pseudo obstruction. It looks and acts like a bowel obstruction on the radiograph, but when they go in to find it, it's not really there. So it's basically a intestinal failure, a paralysis of the intestines. And so eating and other functions of the body have been t- ravaged, ravaged. Um, and, uh, pain, uh, daily pain is, is just, uh, has been a way of life for me for the last seven, almost eight years. Um, and then, so that brings us up to about 2021, just on the heels of the pandemic at, at home in, in, uh, near Louisville. We lived in Southern Indiana, just across the bridge. And we were just, you know, I was sick. Christy's working. We're trying to manage our family. I'm trying to be a, a biblical man and provide and protect for my family. And I'm disabled medically and try to wrestle to how does, what does it look like to be faithful as a husband and a father in my condition? Um, and, and, and then, uh, we're told by Cleveland Clinic that, uh, the, the only possible course of treatment for me is an intestinal transplant, which if your people are listening to this or looking at each other, I didn't even know they did that. There's ER docs I've talked to that said, I didn't know that they did that. It's so rare to give it, put it in perspective, brother. In the U.S. every year, they do about 8,000 liver transplants a year in the U.S. They do a hundred of these a year in the U.S. Wow. A hundred intestinal transplants. Yeah. So, you get the idea. So, so is that because you're, the, the condition you were explaining is essentially your intestines are failing? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Organ failure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't know why. They don't understand this disease. They don't know what causes it or what happened. But what they found out, what I realized uh, since coming to Cleveland Clinic, is that I've actually had this my whole life, but it just presented finally and ultimately in this way in 2015. But I look back on my life. I go over my symptoms with my doctor from my childhood, even asking my mom when I was a baby, and it's, there's no way around it. I got osteoporosis when I was in my 20s, and they couldn't figure what? out why. It's because my intestines were failing. I wasn't absorbing nutrients and calcium and vitamins, but I didn't know that. So, I I mean, I was fully, when you knew me, I had osteoporosis, my bones. If I had fallen down and slipped, I'd have broken my back or my leg or, you know. Man. And it was because of intestinal failure. I didn't know it at the time. You're not Um, getting nutrients. Yeah. So, in 2020, um, the, the Friday before the country shut down on a Monday in March, that Friday before I was at the Cleveland Clinic meeting with my transplant 
a doctor and he said, yeah, now's the time to, to get you listed for a transplant. That's the only, only treatment option that you have left after what we've already done for you. So that was a huge thing. And that's right when you, you know, like what you said, then, then your mind's going, how can this be? Like, where did this come? What is, <laughs> you know, Nashville songwriting, number one, Hurricane Katrina, liver transplant wife, adopting a baby, going to the mission field, losing the mission field, depression, uh, um, you know, going back up to get ministry again, and it's, it's glorious while it lasts. And then you get, and now I need a transplant. What in the, and uh, once I kind of got, once I kind of processed that, Then they said, yeah, in order for you to be technically put on our transplant list for this transplant, you have to live in Cleveland. You have to be close enough to the hospital to get here in time for us if we call you. I'm like, move to Cleveland, Ohio. That's definitely what I meant. (laughs) What I meant when I marched into my living room and told my mom as a 16-year-old, I'm going to be a country music singer. What I really meant was I want to live in Cleveland, Ohio. I want to land there. So, um, in July of last year, brother took, you know, the kids separated themselves from the schools they've known. Christy separated herself from working at the job, although her employer let her work remotely, thankfully. We separated ourselves from our church of 10 years, Emmanuel, and we moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And my mom and my stepdad graciously um, offered to, to sell their home quit their jobs and move up here with us to help us with our kids through this transplant. And mm. the, the, we kept our house down South because the goal was to come up here for a year or so recover and go back to Louisville. Right. Uh, so we kept our house. We didn't sell it. We rented up here. We moved here last July, brother. And by November, my mother was dead from COVID. Mm. The day she died is the day that they closed on the new house they had bought here, literally. No. Mm -hmm. People from Parkside Church, where Alistair Begg preaches, they came. Uh, One of the elders and some other members came and moved my mom's stuff into her garage. My stepdad was also at the VA with COVID at the time. So they moved. It was my wife and those church people at the house that day moving things into my mom's house that she never got to live in. That is insane. You, you, you've brought us all this way and now you've, you've had me move my family to Cleveland and I've done so for this transplant and now you take my mom and I'm not done, Eric. That was November 21st last year, right before Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I don't know. Do you still have your parents? Do you still have your mom and dad? I do. I don't even want, I don't want to do this to you. I mean, you, you, there's no way you can imagine what it's like to lose your parents, and especially your mom. You know, my mom and I were well, very close. Especially, Adam, when you're in the midst of Transition everything you're going through. And yeah. I remember your mom. Um, and, and, and that's sweet, I, man. I think Thank you. Being a comfort and being sweet and being, always being there. And, and I know, I mean, I've been through it. We were in Louisville. We, we had, really difficult time when we moved to Louisville. My in-laws moved uh, for the same reason, just to help us. And I look back in that season, I was like, they were like our rock. Exactly. But then to, yeah, just to, to lose one of them as you're like, okay, I'm going to need you. They're doing this really sweet thing. 
I mean, you had to be thinking when, when you told me the story, I saw it on Facebook as well when it was going down. Um, and of course we had been praying for you guys, but I just remember thinking, why Lord? Exactly. Why? 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 What's the, what's the plan here? What's the play? What's the play? Uh, brother, I would be lying to you if I said I do not still ask that question because, as I said, I'm still not done. But, um, but here, here's what I would say about that. There is a God-honoring way to ask why. If you want proof, just open the Psalms. And there is a sinful doubting way to say why. Yeah. Believers need to know that crying out to the Lord in consternation and confusion and despair, you know, just shy of what you and I would call true despair, which is sinful. But, you know, just like, like we're talking about, like the natural reaction of a man is why, you know, that can be God honoring. The psalmist proves that to us because I call them the schizophrenic psalms, Eric. They're the ones where they start out, <coughs> sorry, brother, and and darkness is my only friend, tears are my only food, and then three verses later, my heart has trusted in you and I will trust in you again. Like, you know, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This guy up here is sounding like he's on the edge of the cliff ready to fall over. And I can vouch for that guy on the edge of the cliff and I can say to you, yeah, we are. We're on the edge of the cliff and we're about to fall over. The question should not be, how can, you, how can a Christian be there? That shouldn't be a question. The question should be, what keeps him from falling? And it's the covenant love of the Lord Jesus to keep his covenant people no matter what. It's not my mm-hmm. hold on him. It's his hold on me. I, I mean, I testify. So mom's gone. And I was the only one. My wife couldn't go hold her hand. She's immunocompromised. My mom's COVID positive. My stepdad can't go visit her and hold her hand. He's in the VA with his own COVID. And we have no one else. It's just us up here. So I'm the one. I'm I'm ready to be listed for a transplant myself. And I'm in the ICU holding my mom's hand for two weeks, two weeks, watching her die. Mm. She dies. And that's the first Thanksgiving without her uh, and Christmas without her. And now the clock turns over to 2022. And, and on February 14th, on Valentine's Day of this year, it was 1030 at night and I was brushing my teeth. And by this time, I, was, I had been put on the transplant list just two weeks prior to this, January 24th, brushing my teeth. And I'm heading to bed. And while I've got my toothbrush in my mouth, my cell phone rings and it's Cleveland Clinic. We have an organ for you. So here I've been sick, just like my wife. Like I've been sick for seven. I've been listed for seven years, but I've been sick for seven years. And we've moved up here. We've gone through my mom's death, her funeral. Now we're trying to move forward. I'm on the list. I get this call and I'm going to get a new intestine. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it because I'm not really looking forward to that huge of a surgery and all the, ch- the challenges on the other side. So it's kind of bittersweet. So we get, we wake up the kids, Eric. And now I've got to say goodbye to my children for what will be at least a one to two month hospital stay where because of mm-hmm. COVID, they won't be able to come and see me. And I make some calls, quick calls to family to let them know. And we make our way up to the hospital. And even after I'm done with this story, I'm not done, brother. I, I, we get to the hospital in the middle of the night, and they tell me where I'm supposed to report. So I get out of the car. There's a picture on Facebook 
of a selfie of me and my family in front of the hospital as they're dropping me off. And I go inside, I go on the elevator, go upstairs to the floor. They get me into this room. They start taking gallons of blood for me to test me for every possible thing. Then they wheel me to my, to a room where I'm now waiting for the transplant. They say, you won't get this at least until tomorrow. So just relax and get some rest. So I rested. Next day, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. It gets to be about 8.30 that next night and no word. And my cell phone rings and it's a nurse and she says, yeah, the organ is not viable and we're going to have to send you home. It's not going to happen. Mm. The organ's not viable. And that's what we call a dry run in the transplant world. It's something that every transplant patient knows uh, is a possibility. And lots of transplant patients get several of those before they actually get the call. Christie's was right away. She didn't have that, but I get this dry run. So there's an emotional roller coaster. I get back home trying to process, okay, Lord, you know, your your timing is perfect. This is providence. I'm gonna just give me faith to trust in this providence, you know. Brother, I don't know. It seemed like it was maybe a month or two after that happened that I get a text from a dear sister uh that we a friend of ours, and she says that someone in her family has a family member that has, uh, has had complications uh, from surgery and is now brain dead in the hospital in Cleveland. And she says nothing to me about my situation. She doesn't make any kind of connection to me about my situation. She just says, hey, um, my family member is there. Can, do you mind reaching out to them just to like, comfort them? And I said, oh, good Lord, this is, yes, please. Uh, you know. So I did, and I was able to connect with this family member. We had sweet fellowship. And um, I come home, and I, dis- I tell this person, this was a Friday, and I say, Sunday, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back. So Sunday, I go visit the, the, that person's mom and dad, who were the parents of this, this child who was dying, young person who was mm. brain dead. Brother, I go to the hospital, and I'm, I'm meeting the parents, you know, and, I, I, and they, they've heard a little bit about my story. You didn't know them at this point. No, no. But I knew, I knew their other son quite okay. well. And their other son had told them, hey, this person who's coming to visit has had blank, blank, and blank going on in their life. So they know. So I go there and I listen carefully to what I'm saying. I go into this ICU waiting room and I meet mom and dad whose younger son is in back behind those doors and he's brain dead. It's just, it's just a matter of, of time. And they look at me. And they say, our son told us about you and your situation. And we just want you to know that we've told our doctors that if our son's intestine is a match for you, we want it to go to you. Mm. And there I'm standing in front of these people, dear beloved believers, they love the Lord, right? So everybody in this little huddle in this room, brother, that I'm talking about, we all get the score. We all know the Lord. We, we, we know, you know. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's, yeah. there's Bible fellowship between us. And I mean, what am I supposed to say? So I said what I could think to say, you know, thank you and God and prayed with them. And, and I left and I got in my car and I just bawled. I just bawled. And I said to the Lord, could this be the moment that we've been ramping up to? Could you be doing this? Is this what, is this why there was a dry run? Are you, are, because the connection between myself and this family brother was Emmanuel. We were, we had shared membership at Emmanuel. 
So no. like, Lord, are are you are They're you in Cleveland? Sa- are, yes. Wow. And and here's what I listen to my thinking. It's important. I was thinking, Lord, I don't pretend to know how you work. I don't know, but are you Emmanuel's been pleading with you for me? For, for my sake alone, just for years, right? They've been walking through this with us faithfully yeah. and they know the context of the bigger story. They know they can put this story in the context of our bigger story. They, they can appreciate this as a body. Like, are you going to cause them to erupt in total cheer and ecstasy when they find out that you've, this is how you've answered their prayers? Is that what you have in store? That's what I was thinking. Like, does that make sense? Like, yeah. I was thinking, Lord, how how unsearchable is your wisdom that you would cause this dry run, which would make me go, why, Lord? And then you would you would answer it with, I'll tell you why, because I want to do this greater work through blessing, not just you and your, but Emmanuel too, as a church that's been pleading with me to. So I'm just putting this together in my mind, but all the while I'm going, Lord, I don't, I'm not, I don't know that this is what you're doing. I'm just saying it would be so you to do something like this, right? Yeah. You know? <sighs> so... It turns out, as you can imagine, that um, it must not have been a match because that did not materialize. That didn't happen. And I didn't ask, and I'm not inclined to ask, but I'm still left Eric Kahn. Why? If you weren't going to give me the transplant, that's fine. The Lord can do with me what he wants. Why even but bring why? it up? Why even, why even do this? Why, why stir his parents' souls? why get my hopes up and why get my spiritual hopes of this great, big, joyous praise that Emmanuel might break into just because of this connection and your providence and oh, look, why, why, why all this? Why? You could have just said no transplant and I'm still not done. So that was spring of this year. Brother, it was two or three months later when I'm in a transplant clinic visit, just kind of like check up, you know, just a visit with my transplant surgeon. And uh, it's a bit of a long story that I won't go into to explain why this is the case, but he tells me that based on clinical test results, like blood work and that sort of thing, it's clear to them that my body is now uh, absorbing food better and I'm able to actually keep my own body weight through what I eat. Whereas I didn't mention this, but for four years, I had a permanent IV in my chest and overnight for 12 hours, I would have these liquid IV food uh, infusions at at my bedside every night, including- Were you you eating at all during that time? A little, some, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it had gotten to where over, yeah, over time- I was able to eat more, but but it happened so gradually, I didn't even really notice it. But they said, we've noticed that you're able to eat more, which is ideal. That's what we want. We don't want you to be on this, you know. Um, And so they said, um, we we have to remove that line and take you off of this TPN because you're able to do it. And and we're going to test and see how that goes. They did that. I did fine. Another appointment uh, to follow up. Yeah. So, so after that initial appointment, um, so we're leading up to this next clinic visit and I've been off the TPN now for a while and I'm starting to understand what's at stake now, because if I'm not on TPN, I don't qualify for the transplant. I already mm. knew that. 
And now they've experimented with me not being on TPN. Now, this is not bad news, brother. This is good news. Like, I'm able to eat on my own. I don't need this dangerous uh, line in my body where I had gotten sepsis twice before from it, right? Almost died. So, this is good. But, brother, listen. What? Like, so, this was a Sunday afternoon. My appointment was the next morning. And, I, and it was after church, I was in my kitchen and I was sitting there thinking about the next day's appointment. And I just knew that they were going to tell me that they were going to take me off the transplant list. I had been doing the addition in my mind and I'm like, well, if this is the case, then I know that's the case. And if that's the case, well, then I know I'm not on the. So I told Christy, I said, honey, I know this sounds crazy, but I think they're going to tell me tomorrow that I'm not, go- I'm not on the list anymore. And she's like, no. I mean, they, brother, what I did, what I left out earlier before I had the privilege of moving my family here, I had to meet certain qualifications to be put on the list. You know what one of the qualifications was that I had no. to do? Because, because of the, the way that my disease had affected my bones, I had to have both my hips replaced. What? I had both you my had hips a double, replaced in 2020. You had a double hip replacement. 2021. Before I could move up here and be on the list. That was part of the requirement. You got to do this, got to do this to be healthy are enough you, for the Are surgery. you even 40 yet, Adam? I'm 46. 46. Jeez. And you had both. Remember, I had osteoporosis in my 20s. Is that what yeah. caused the hip problem? Mm-hmm. Jeez. Got the hips replaced. Moved my family. Mom dies. Get the dry run. My friend from church calls me with this. How do you respond to that call? And you meet the parents. And now I know the next day I'm getting ready to have this appointment. And I just, I know they're going to tell me I'm not on the list. I just let it sink in for a second, but can you? Um... No. And I, I think just to interject briefly, it, that's the amazing thing about this story, Adam is it's like watching a movie where you're like, okay, I finally understand what's going to happen next. Yeah. Right. And then right, it right, doesn't. Right, right. And then, and then something else and happens and then you're like, well, surely the, this time that's not going to happen again. But then, yeah, here, here you are at this point in your story. So you're waiting for this appointment. Brother that afternoon, here's what I was thinking. Now it's important to know now that the whole story has gone. I, t- I warned you when we spoke a while back, I warned you, there's no quick way for me to tell this testimony. No. It's just not, but, but in either case, what I'm about to tell you is the culmination of years of suffering that the Lord has sharpened me and convicted me, and I've sinned in, in depression, I've sinned in despair, and I've sinned with suicidal threats. And you know, so don't don't get this idea. Oh, Adam's a super saint that just always responds great to suffering. No, I'm able to respond like I am today because of of the of the process, the value of the process, right? And that's this Sunday afternoon. I thought to myself, I sat on the bed. I'm like, I just know that they're going to tell me this tomorrow. And I was talking to the Lord. I was praying. I was like, Lord, I don't understand. Why? Why would you have us? I mean, I could go back more than a decade in my whys, but I'm just going to focus on the last 12 months, Lord. Why the two hips? Why the move? Why did my mom have to come up here and die? Why did I have to get this dry run? Why did I have to go through the emotion of this exchange with my friend and my church member from Emmanuel? Why? And now you're going to take, now you're going to undo all this and just push, just turn the off switch. Like, what is the deal? And so I said to myself, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that tomorrow I'm going to walk into this clinic visit and they're going to tell me that I'm not on the transplant list anymore. And I told the Lord, I said, Lord, 
if I'm right about this, just give me faith so I can respond faithfully. Mm. That's all. Just give me faith. Mm. And I wrote that song. I sat down and I wrote Give Me Faith. It's one of the songs on my project that, uh, that I, it's, it's complete. Father, how much longer can this go on? I know you love me, but you know I'm empty. Give me faith to believe that this trial is good for me. That your fire purifies me as a son. Give me power in this hour. When temptation would devour Father, meet me in this moment With just enough And when tomorrow's trouble comes Give me faith I believe Help my unbelief Give me faith I believe Help my So that didn't take long to write, brother. And the next day, Christy and I go to the appointment, and they indeed tell me, again, it's not bad news that you don't need a transplant. I mean, that's right. Like, that's yeah. good. Um, you're still going to suffer. You're still going to have these unpleasant um, uh, symptoms, pain and stuff. But they basically reminded me, like, uh, an intestinal transplant is nothing like a liver transplant. Christy had her liver transplant. The moment she woke up from surgery, her eyes were now white whereas they'd been yellow. Her life was completely changed afterwards. It's been a mere intestinal transplant is not the same. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to get Didn't into, you tell me too that the, like their rate of survival, just survival it's really is very poor. poor. It's poor and the long-term outcomes are not favorable. They're just not good. And it's just, it's just because of the nature of the transplant. So, you know, they're telling me something that's not technically bad news, but do I need to sell you on how challenging emotionally <laughs> no. the news was? So, so, you know, you get into this meeting and they, they tell you and, and you were kind of expecting, I was kind of expecting it. And so we left the meeting and I came home, brother, and I wrote what I consider to be my career song. And it's called Slay Me. And if it's okay, I'll just recount some of it to you right here. Yeah, please. Um, so, so I prayed for faith the day before that I would just have enough faith to respond to this ridiculous news and not lose my salvation publicly, right? I just need, just, just give me enough faith to where I don't abandon you in this great hour. And he did, brother. He answered. He gave me the faith. He gave it to me. But I, st- I came home and I think I have every right to say to him what I said to him when I said to him, Father, finish, just finish the job. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Just slay me. You know you want to. You've been pursuing me for all these years. You've come close to. You've had your knife raised to me and at my throat so many times. Just go. Now, I'm not talking. Now, please hear what I'm saying. I'm not talking some sinful, uh, suicidal, no, not at all. This is Job chapter two at the end when his friends come upon him and he is in such grief and sorrow, Eric Kahn, they physically do not recognize him. Mm. That's me. And you know it. That Monday, 
that was where I was at. You put all these pieces together, you add them up, and I'm that guy. By his grace, Eric, I still believe. I still love him. I still cherish him. I still, I'm not, I, I don't feel like I'm accused. I'm not shaking my fist at him. And that lyric shows up in the song. In a second, I'll, I'll recount it. But are you with me? Yep. Are you with me? I'm a man at the end of his rope. If there is such a condition as a man who genuinely loves and trusts the Lord, and yet he's at the end of his rope, I'm him. And you know how I know that category exists? Just look at Gethsemane. Just look at Golgotha, mm. right? I'm filling up the afflictions of Christ right there. And here's, so here's what I, I wrote. Tears are now my food. Darkness now, my friend. This is way more painful than I thought it would be. But if there's a single sin left in me, do what you gotta do. Prune what you need to prune Whatever it takes To make me more like you I won't resist I won't shake my fist I won't curse your name No, if this is what it takes To save me Slay me Go ahead and slay me Cause I know you will raise me Death is such a consternation for a believer because Paul makes it clear it's the last enemy of God. I mean, death is an enemy, make no mistake about it. But God takes his last enemy to be destroyed and he uses it for such good, doesn't he? He, he takes us out of our suffering through death, right? Death ushers a believer. In fact, John makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear in the Gospel of John that if you abide in me, you will never taste death. You won't see it. You won't experience it. All that dark hallway and nasty, horrifying experience of death that we have in our minds, that's probably quite true. And then to the hundredth degree, right? We won't experience it, Eric. Jesus experienced it for us on the cross. So, so that death for a believer is literally, like it says, closing the eyes opening them up, and there's the glory. Mm. We skip over. We skip over that experience of death. We don't taste it. He tasted it for us as our substitute. So to a guy in my shoes, to sing to the Lord after all that you know you want to do it, <laughs> just finish the job. Wow. Because why? Because I know you're going to raise me. Yeah, it's incredible. To me, brother, to me, that's the only way I can think of as a songwriter to tell the Lord these two truths that run simultaneously in my soul like railroad tracks. And that is, this is infinitely hard and it stinks and I wouldn't have chose it for myself and I refuse to rejoice in this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask for more of it. I'm not going to say, oh, look how good it is. No, it is wicked. It's evil. It's wicked. What happened to Satan. I mean, what happened to Job was Satan's desire. Right? He wanted to go after Job. And of course, Lord, this other rail says, in spite of this rail being 100% true, at the same time, this is also true, that it is good for me that I was afflicted. And that song, Slay Me, is the only, the best way I know how to say that, both to the Lord and to other believers. Those two truths can and should be in the heart of sufferers, it's okay to say that it's hard. It's okay. Jesus said it was hard in Gethsemane. 
Um, the second verse of that song, by the way, Eric, ends with, um, a little relief is all I'm asking you for, but Father, not my will, but yours. So it's that acknowledgement, right? I'm not afraid to say what I want, what I'd rather have, but the Spirit has taught me to submit to His wisdom. Yeah, it's incredible. I, th- I think a huge part of it, Adam, is the, um, as we go through trials like this, it it has forced me, it sounds like it's forced you as well, to come face to face with things like Lamentations 3, um, to come face to face with Psalm 73. I, and I, I've weighed that often in thinking like in a, in a Psalm 73, where he says, I would like a beast toward you. My flesh and my heart had failed me. Like actually being at the point where you're like, no, literally my, my mental state, my heart, not just like my beating heart, but my will, like I'm done. I, I've failed. And what, what you said earlier is that realizing in that moment that God's covenant love is still with me. He says, even in the darkness, you still hold my hand. You're still guiding me. I think it, it really pushes to us to maturity because there's no more empty platitudes, right? Like I remember times actually at Valvoline when we had coworkers who would say things like, uh, well, you know, I'm just, how's your day? Well, you know, I'm just too blessed to be stressed. And you're like, okay, I know you heard that at a mega church, but it's garbage. And it's not the, it's not the experience of faithful Christians. And, and also I think you can look at some of the most faithful men in Christian history. You think about, you know, Jeremiah, you think about, uh, again, that, that goes back to lamentations, but you've got Job, you've got David in the wilderness. These experiences are recorded in the Psalms and other scriptures. And they're, I would say for modern consumeristic Americans, uh, there's a book I just read. It's called the comfort crisis. He said, America's really struggling from a comfort crisis. There's like no hardship at all. And I'm like, well, there's not, except that I think God in his infinite wisdom and love has taken stories like yours. And he said to people, no, I I actually, I'm going to teach you those more mature parts of scripture. The ones that make people uncomfortable, right? If you read Job, really read Job in the middle parts of Job. His friends get very uncomfortable with him because he's like, I cursed the day I was born. It would be better if I had not been born. Um, to go through some of the sufferings that we go through, a, a natural, and, and we're told that Job didn't sin. He didn't curse God, right? But, but to get to some of these low points and say, just God, end me. I mean, you could understand from very, very personal experience now, why that would be the case. I'm curious, I think, and I don't know, we've talked a little bit about this, but I think part of it too is that, you know, Second Corinthians 1, why do we suffer these afflictions? And the reason that's often given, A, so we can taste of the mercy and comfort of God, but then the second reason is so that we can help others who are suffering. And I think one of the things that your story has done for me is we're all in those positions where you start to feel bad for yourself. Um, there, one of the things about suffering that can be so hard is it, it, there's no terminus. I just want a conclusion. 
some of our trials I've experienced are seven years, five years more. And then even then you never really have an answer. But again, I, I, I think that's what's so encouraging actually about your story is that God is using that to comfort other people and using you to bring comfort in ways that like, you can never say, well, no, Adam, you don't know. You don't, you've never been there before. You don't know how it really feels. Well, try me. You know, I've, you can say I've, I've been pretty much as low as you can go. Um, I've been there. I've experienced it and remain faithful, you know, by God's grace. So, yeah, I don't know if you've thought about that, but uh, I, I think it's just a lot, brother. A lot, because on the last thing you just said, while I, I, I acknowledge that there's truth, you know, behind the, this reality that our family has experienced uh, a degree and a quantity and a level of peculiarly difficult providences and sufferings that don't characterize a lot of other Christians. I acknowledge that. Uh, and so, yeah, that that does come and I think should come with a bit of seniority, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so to speak, in that regard. But I think it's also important to note, and I know you agree with this, but it's important to note at the same time for those young Christians out, those younger Christians out there that are listening to this and they, they're going, man, or even even older saints that are going, man, I haven't gone through really any suffering to speak of like that. Uh, so does that mean that I can't counsel someone in their suffering? You and I both know yeah. that the authority upon which we counsel others is not our experience. It's nice to be able to say, oh man, I've been, I know how hard that feels. I mean, it's nice to be able to relate to someone and say, man, I, I get that, man. I remember how hard it was for me to be faithful in that moment too. And, and to, to counsel from that, that's great. If the Lord gives you that, that's great. But that's not the authority. That's not what comforts me. What comforts me is not the fact that you can say to me, man, I've been there. And I can say to myself, man, I know Eric's been there, so I better listen to him. No, Eric is telling me the voice of Jesus. And when I hear the voice of Jesus, he's my shepherd. I listen, I take delight in that. And I'm comforted by his word, right? John yes. 10. So it's the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that should be our comfort. I, again, I know you agree, but I just want to throw that in. Like, yes, it's nice to have the experience. I love now counseling others who are suffering because I feel a great sympathy towards them. Like I, I know how those er, those times made it particularly tempting for me to sin. So I get that and I can counsel out of that. That's wonderful wisdom to counsel out of. But what's really going to change their life is when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. That's, that's the money. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. And I, I think it's the, the ability to um, kind of take the experience and then be able to share, like really what you're doing is pointing people back to scripture, saying these things are eternally true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to be your God as well in the midst of these trials. And um, yeah, and, and I think just it's good also for people to see you know, I remember hearing this about, uh, when, you know, David and adultery. It, it's so often the case that people's sufferings and failures are, are more of an encouragement than their successes, right? Where, mm, Yeah, amen. Because a lot amen. of times you can read the story of like, oh, Adam had a number one hit. He was in Nashville. But a lot of times people were like, yeah, I actually can't identify with that. Um, you know, I, that's great. We love those stories and, and they have a powerful thing. Um, and, and it's easy too. I cannot remember which football player it was, but they lost like the national championship 
And he's like, you know, everybody after they win, they're like, oh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. And he's like, yeah, I just want to point to the same thing and say, I, I can lose and have my kind of have my heart ripped out and I'm still going to praise Jesus. And cause that's real. I think for so many people, like that's where we really need to hear that is most of us are not winning Super Bowls and writing number one hit songs. You know, we're going through kind of the suffering and the difficulty of life. Man, uh, you remember what I said at the beginning of this, uh, where I said at the end of this story, what I hope to convince you and others mm. of is that I genuinely mean with all of my heart that it is infinitely better to know God than to not know suffering. Mm. And I would not have been able to make that glorious proclamation and witness to the Lord Jesus without this suffering. Romans 8, I had it open a second ago, let me turn back to it. Listen again, listen anew to what he says in Romans 8, 17. You know, you know the verse, but um, he says, and if, <clears throat> excuse me, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God in 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So why that sticks out to me in this context is you don't get to the glory without the suffering. This is the an age-old theological formula, if to put it in that term. Like, like, like yeah. right? So the theology yeah. of the cross, like... You know, they were calling to him on the cross. Hey, come down. You know, you said you can do it. You did these other things. Come down. He could have come down in his power as God himself, but there's no way he could have come down in his person of God because it was willed that he would suffer before being glorified. Mm. So you can't get to glorification includes, it's not limited to, but it includes, listen, Eric, glorification includes a perfect witness bearing about God. Mm. Think about it. And my witness bearing about Christ, who God is, the treasure worthiness of Christ, like my wit my you will be my witnesses, my my being a witness of Jesus, my my fulfillment of that role he has for me fundamentally. It's off the charts now compared to was, what it was before I suffered. Romans 8, 17 explains that, suffering. So again, we go back to James 1. How can I, of course, I'm not stupid. Of course, there's a side of me that says, and when somebody says, hey, would you like to be 12 years old again? And do <laughs> Heck no. no, I don't want to go through this, this gong show again, this house of horrors again. But in my sober mind, I say, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm not a sadist. I'm not, I'm not just a sucker for suffering. But brother, I would never in a billion billions trade the fellowship that I have received with the Lord Jesus through this suffering. Mm. It has proven itself to be infinitely superior to the state of being which is a lack of suffering and a lack of discomfort and unpleasantness. We think with the world that the best state of possible being is to have a, an existence without suffering. And it's true that in glory, we won't have that. So I don't want to minimize, I don't want to undo that. But just for a second, <clears throat> in this life, in this fallen world, we cannot fully know and worship God 
in order to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to worship him, if we don't know him as a comforter, we can't worship him properly. Mm. Do you see it? Yep. Right? Like he made us to know and worship him. But if if we're just Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that's the end of the story, like my daughter asked me, why didn't God leave it there? Boy, that was a great conversation, brother. I mean, that was glorious because <laughs> like because there was something radically wrong in the Garden of Eden. There was this you want to talk about songwriting. There was a song that was not being sung in the Garden of Eden that the Father had eternally determined was the best number one song ever to be sung. And that song is, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Mm. Wow. There was no slain lamb in the garden. And there had to be a slain lamb for you and I to properly worship God for all he is. Not just like Adam and Eve could have known him as a good God, provider God, sovereign God, powerful God, you name it, all these kind of, right? They could worship him and all all these, but they couldn't worship him as a merciful saving God. Mm. And that's incomplete worship. That's incomplete delight in the Lord. And the Lord God will have none of it because the full knowledge of him is what's best for us. And he will never let his covenant children settle for what's second best for them. So this, it is good for me that I was afflicted. The affliction was not good. I'm still living it. I'm in Cleveland for what? I don't know, mom. I have no mom anymore. I got no one to call when I want the advice. My dad was dead in 2017. I thankfully have my stepfather, praise God. I've got my new church family. I've got my family. But I mean, Eric, what am I doing here? Yeah. I, I, I didn't, I, I'm not by nature a Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think you have to be born into brother, that. I don't need to have the answer to that question. Mm. All I need to know, all I need to know is that first and foremost, he can do with me whatever he wants. Mm. If he wanted me to be born in, in North Korea where I could never have this conversation with you, he can do that with me. He's the potter, I'm the clay. He can do whatever he wants. And, he, and what he has chosen to do with me, I view myself as the most privileged Christian. I do. Mm. I'm the I'm 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 most beloved by the Father. I don't really believe that. He doesn't play favorites, but you get my yeah. point. Like, is he picking on me? No. He singled me out for tremendous heightened fellowship with him. And if I can do something through music to propagate that to others, then well, oh, that would be a delight to my soul. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for joining me for this podcast. Uh it's just I just been kind of speechless and in awe, uh listening to you tell your story. And ultimately, I think what it is, is God writes the most amazing stories. They're full of glory and suffering and hardship and twists and turns. Um, But ultimately, it leads us, and I think it should lead us, uh, to glorify Christ and to worship him. So again, I want to thank you, brother. And uh, this will be my plug. One more way for you to be involved in Cleveland is to uh, be involved with New Christendom Press. Uh, We've got podcasts, books. Maybe, just maybe, there's an Adam Dorsey title uh, coming um, that would be pretty cool. So we'd love to have it. Man, thank you for that. I, I, I have long ago learned to never say never. <laughs> right. That's exactly I right. I don't know what the Lord has for me. I'm, I'm grateful for where he has me, even though I'm perplexed by it. And thank you, brother, for your kindness to me, your friendship over the years. Mm. I've told you privately many times, you're, 
you helped me so much by bringing me into Valvoline and helping me to grow in my manhood, which has been a, a desire of my heart. You know, I, I want to grow in my manhood. I want to be faithful to the Lord in these things. And I'm still wrestling with how to do that exactly practically mm. in the role I'm now in. But I do feel peace about the providence of the Lord and where he has me. I can't change that. So, um, but yeah, just thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your ministry and how you've uh, helped me think through these things uh, biblically and faithfully over the years. And I look forward to many more to come. Bless you, brother. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Wow. Again, what an amazing story. Great talking to Adam. I hope it's been a great encouragement to you. If you're going through suffering, maybe you're at one of the high points. Either way, it is an encouragement to hear about what God has done in Adam's life, his family's life, and what he's doing in the lives of his saints. So again, Merry Christmas. Hope everybody is encouraged. By the way, if you need a last minute Christmas gift idea, be sure to check out Hardman Podcast Store at ericcon.com. You can check the link in the show notes for that. You can get a Virtus or Pietas t-shirt. You can also get a mug. Those work wonderfully as gift ideas. Who wouldn't want to get that for Christmas? And uh, you're probably probably not going to get there in time, but at least you can uh, maybe get there for the New Year's. So be sure to check that out again, ericcon.com. Again, special thanks to Barbell Logic, barbelllogic.com. If you need some training videos, if you want to get some online coaching, check them out. You can do so at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen. And that goes to supporting them and also supporting this show. Definitely check that out first month is always free for online barbell coaching. Get strong with barbelllogic.com slash hard men. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. 